SureDog Radio Network preview for UFC on ESPN 24, Rodriguez versus Watterson, also known as UFC Vegas 26. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Schillen. Keith is the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network, as well as the Loudmouth MMA Podcast Network. He is the creator of numerous shows for SureDog Radio, including MMA, Past, Present, and Future, and, of course, The Shillin' and Duffy Show. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, brother. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well. Uh, in looking at this card, obviously, you know, a week or two out, we had some big shakeup at the top. We lost the headliner and easily the biggest fight on the card from a standings perspective when TJ Dillashaw got cut in training. Uh, he fell off the card and his matchup with Corey Sandhagen is pushed down the road to whenever. And then just barely less than a week ago, in the wake of the whole fiasco around Diego Sanchez, uh, he was released from the UFC. And it feels as though the UFC just kind of grabbed some chewing gum and bailing wire and duct tape and fixed this card with materials on hand. They kept Donald Cerrone on the card as easily the biggest name left on the card by bringing in uh, Alex Morono to uh, take him on on you know, like five or six days notice. They put together a makeshift main event, which is two strawweight contenders fl fighting at flyweight. It'll be Marina Rodriguez and Michelle Waterson. I think because of all those shakeups, I kind of wrote this card off. I'm like, oh man, this was kind of a, a junk card to start with. And now it's just going to totally suck. And the more I started diving into this card, kind of preparing for our talk today and preparing to watch the card, the more kind of impressed I am with it. There are actually a bunch of good fights on here. And now, instead of looking at this as like a mediocre fight night card that just went down the tubes when it lost some big matchups, I'm like, this would have been one of the better free cards of the year, and it's still okay in spite of losing a bunch of stuff at the top. I mean, do you feel any of that? Are, are you as kind of high on this card as I am? Yeah, so I'm looking at the card, and... You think about some of the fights that have we canceled. Obviously, the main event, the main event would have been so exciting. You have, uh, you know, Corey Sanhagen, who looks, who's, you know, his last couple fights has been off the charts impressive. Going against TJ Dillashaw, who, you know, when he last saw him fight, he was actually, you know, the champion of, of the organization. So after a two year layoff, there were so many storylines. There's so much a streak, just a stylistic matchup between those guys, regardless of uh, the time off and all this, would, would have been fantastic. The Cerrone versus Diego fight, it has nostalgia to it. I don't know if it was interesting. And I actually think that Alex Morano, in an X and O sense, is a more intriguing fight. Yeah, tougher matchup for Cerrone. I haven't followed the Diego fiasco that well because... Um, just so many things going on in my personal life. It was just sometimes you can't follow this. You can't follow everything. Uh, I'm glad I haven't because uh, it gets weirder and weirder as anything that has to do with Diego does. But I will say this. I'm sad the way that Diego's run in the UFC ended. Like it's, it's sad that it kind of went this way. It's, this is a guy that, I mean, he won the ultimate fighter show, the show that credited with saving the UFC. Um, some of the other fights, I'm looking. Holly Holm was supposed to be on this fight uh, originally uh, wow. against Juliana Pena. Uh, then that was 
that was canceled very very early on. But just overall, this 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 is a really loaded card. And well, I will I will say this: it's a very deep card. Like there's five, six, seven fights that I'm very very interested in, but it doesn't have that like headlining fight. Like uh, Marina Rodriguez versus Michelle Waterson. That seems like a co-main event, third from the top fight. Like it's missing that one. Um, Gregor Gillespie versus uh, Carlos Diego Fajas, fantastic fight in the rankings. Jeff Neal, Neil Magny, that's a great fight from the rankings. Like there's a lot of good ones. There's a lot of co-main events. I don't feel like there's a main event fight. That's right. the only thing this is missing. But there's intriguing prospects that I like. Uh, there's some storylines I like. So yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I think this is a really good card. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. The one thing that it doesn't have that, frankly, most of your fight night cards do have, there are no garbage can fights. There are no like, and by I don't mean the fighters are garbage. I just mean there's no fight where you know that the person who loses is probably gone. There's no fight between two guys that are zero and two in the UFC on this on this card. You know, <laughs> there might be one that should if the person oh, yeah. loses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna say that, but being that 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 fight actually two of them that both fights are at heavyweight, they won't. Like the loser will to lose a job. They probably should. Right. Uh, they'll probably make our cut list. Uh, the other thing that it jumps out to me is it's a hard fight to pick. I mean, I'm looking at the lines right now, and this is you know we're taping this Wednesday night, so that could change. But the biggest favorite right now is Ludwig Klein at negative two fifty, and that's not a you know that's a sizable favorite but that's not a massive favorite that's the biggest favorite in the entire card which obviously makes it to me even more interesting because you had 12 fights and you go six and six on your picks that's not too shabby in this card well other right. times you go six and six that's a really bad night absolutely and you're right most of these uh ufc cards these days there'll just be a minus 400 snuck in there somewhere because there's someone stepping up on short notice that really doesn't belong here or, you know, there's somebody that's lost four of their last five and they're getting one last chance. No, you're totally right on, on that. Uh, it makes them a bunch of tricky fights to pick. And, uh, you know, unless you had anything else, we might as well get... Well, one thing I also want to say, when I was doing film study, like I always, I've told this before, I've said on the recap show, I've said on this show, I always like to see if my film study will change my opinion. So before I break down any fight, I will write down the list of fights and I'll write down who I think is going to win before film study. And this is one of the cards where I've changed my opinion with film study probably more than I have in recent history. And even some of the ones that I was feeling confident about before, I might not have changed my pick, but suddenly I'm like, oh man, like this is a lot closer fight than I expected it to be. So that's also fun. Absolutely. Uh, This card is, it's going to teach us a lot about a lot of these fighters and, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to dig in. Let's let's get into these prelims. First up at UFC on ESPN 24 is a welterweight matchup between Christian Aguilera and Carlston Harris. Aguilera, the 29-year-old Californian, is 14 and 7 overall. He is 1 and 1 in the UFC, having debuted last summer. He knocked out Anthony Ivey in just a minute in his debut at UFC on ESPN 10 then turned around and got choked all the way out by Sean Brady at UFC Fight Night Smith versus Rockage in August. He'll be welcoming to the UFC Harris, the first ever fighter from the nation of Guyana to enter the UFC. 
He is 33 years old. He is 15 and four overall across a number of respectable promotions, including Brave CF, Shudo Brazil, uh, Abu Dhabi Warriors. Uh, and this will be uh, his first fight in the octagon. Odds slightly favor the debuting fighter. You can get Harris around minus 150 as the favorite. Aguilera is out there plus 125 or plus 130 as the slight underdog. Uh, Keith, how do you see this fight uh, breaking down? Yeah, so this is one of those ones when before I did tape study, I I wasn't excited about it. I was like, ah, these are two lower level UFC guys. I mean, Harris is well in his 30s by the time he's coming into the UFC but then when I read the tape study, I, I was intrigued by both guys. Um, Aguilera, like the first thing that jumped out to me about Aguilera is, well, one, he had, his, he had the knockout of, over Anthony Ivey, as you mentioned. It was Anthony Ivey. But then he went against Sean Brady, who I like a lot. I mean, I think everyone really likes him a lot. He was a guy that I was really intrigued coming into the UFC. He's really, he's undefeated. He's looked fantastic. And we all remember the, you know, Top side guillotine where Paul Felder was talking about, you know, he's gonna go out. This is the you know strongest squeeze I've ever felt. But I forgot how well Aguilar was actually doing on the feet that he actually caught Brady with some shots that made Brady shoot for the takedown. Uh, and that's because Aguilar is a high output striker. When you continue to come forward, you're gonna land shots. He's very aggressive, he's got some good boxing, his hands are pretty fast, he stays tight, uh, they're not really looping. Uh, yeah, and he as he, he has good power, as I just said. His left hook is really his best strike, but he also has a really good overhand right. So if he lands either one of those power shots, he can put you out. And I like that he was throwing a lot of calf kicks, especially against someone like Brady, which shows to me intelligence. Because you know, you look at Brady's just a, he's a massive uh, built physique guy. He's huge, and he generates a lot of power. Well, if you can take out his legs, that'll loot, you know, that'll zap a lot of his power, uh, and. We haven't seen it in the UFC, but on the regional scene, he will sneak in a takedown, but I wouldn't character, characterize him as a, as a wrestler by any means. Though the biggest weakness he did show against Sean Brady is his takedown defense. It's something that he struggled on the regional scene, uh, someone like Sean O'Brady exposed. Now move over to Carlton Harris, looking for a fighter guy. He's got some long arms. He fight, On the feet, he fights behind a long jab. I would say he's got pretty good snap on his punches because uh, he has, like, deceiving range with, with – just got his weird build of his of his long arms. He he will reach at times, like, overextend a little bit to, and, and to, to get to his opponent, and that's because his entire game plan on the feet is to ultimately close a distance. He's a grappler. He can shoot on your hips. He's got pretty decent entries. Uh, you know, he's not Gregor Gillespie, who we're going to see on this card, but he's – Got some pretty good entries, and he and he gets to the body lock very easily because everything comes off of his long arms. He gets to the body lock. Uh, he's very good at like doing that, like just like what they call in wrestling a slide by. He'll do a slide by, and then like throw like one hook in and start working from that. We see a lot of times like, as he gets defense with one hook in. Uh, but if he gets you down, he's a good grappler on the ground. He's got heavy top pressure. He likes to advance position. He's one of these guys. He's willing to just grind out a boring decision which is not pleasing to the fans, but is, I think, rises his stock in the UFC and in, in, in how far he can go. The guys who's not willing, you know, who's willing to win an ugly fight usually wins those fights. I think about guys like Gerald Harris and Antonio McKee and Court McGee and, like, these guys, there's been guys who beat guys who are much more athletic 
than them by doing that style. Uh, he's he is a submission threat. He really likes Darce jokes. I've seen him finish some fights with Darce jokes. He also had other opponents in Darce jokes. And cardio is actually a strength. This is a guy that's a regional champion. He's going 25 minutes. Uh, so he showed he can go deep in the fights. Obviously, 25 minutes is not going to matter in this fight, but it's just it's nice to see him do that. You know, if he can go 25, he probably should go 15. I really want to take Aguilar, and I and I know I'm spending way too much time on this fight than I should, um, but it's actually I'm intrigued by it. His boxing is really solid. However, he hasn't shown me enough that he can stop a takedown, and I know Harris is going to look for a lot of takedowns. He's going to look to gruel, ugly battle. I think he's going to get a few takedowns. I think he's going to write out a decision. This is going to kind of be a – I think it might be a little bit of a snoozer to start the card. Uh, but give me Harris winning his UFC debut by decision. I I feel a lot of, of what you're putting out here because after watching both of these guys, I was really uh, high on Aguilera's chances as well. One nice thing about Harris is you pointed out that he's, you know, just debuting in the UFC now at like age 33, but he's had a solid run on the kind of international scene. I mean, he's beaten a couple of UFC guys on his way up. Michelle Pereira, Wellington Terman. Uh, his only loss recently is to Jarrah Hussein al-Salawi, who's one of the best. Uh, he's one of the best prospects over in Brave CF right now. I mean, there's every chance he'll be our next uh, Hamzat Chamayev or, or Ilya Tapuria to come over from there. So, I mean, he's had a really good run. As you pointed out, he's had uh, five round uh, fights over there. That's a good sign. It's tempting for me to say that Aguilera might just do to him what he did to Ivy, because Ivy's another long, lanky guy who wants to close the distance and get the fight ground. But Harris has just, he has much slicker entries than Anthony Ivy does. And I think he's probably a, a better striker. Wouldn't surprise me too badly if Aguilera just catches him, you know, trying to crash the pocket or, or trying to shoot for a takedown and just getting a little too eager and just conks him like he does Ivy. But I'm with you. I'm uh, I'm picking Harris to be able to get this fight to the ground without having to wade through too much fire, and not going to pick him to finish Aguilera. I mean, it took one hell of a squeeze from Sean Brady to to put this man out. But uh, give me Harris to do enough to win at least two rounds. Uh, Harris by decision for me as well. We move up to the middleweight division as Jun Yong Park takes on Tafan Nchukwi. Park, the 30-year-old South Korean, is owner of a 12-4 record, a 2-1 record in the UFC, and probably the best nickname on the planet as he goes by the Iron Turtle. His UFC record consists of a loss to Anthony Hernandez in his debut back in August of 2019, followed up by back-to-back -back wins over Mark andre Barrio and most recently, John Phillips back at UFC Fight Night, Ortega versus Korean Zombie, last October. Nchukwi, the 26-year-old Cameroonian, is a perfect 5-0 in his UFC career. He is 1-0 in the UFC, having beaten Jamie Pickett by unanimous decision last December at UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neal. That was on the heels of a very successful appearance on Dana White's Contender Series in September, where he knocked out Al Madaval with a second-round head kick. Odds in this one slightly favor the Cameroonian. Uh, Nchukwi is minus 140. Park is out there around plus 115 or plus 120 as the underdog. Uh, Keith? Anytime it's uh, 
a Dana White Contender Series alum. I definitely look uh, to your research and wisdom. Tell me about Tafan and Chukwi and how you think this fight goes. Yeah, so this is definitely one of the fights that I changed. I, I changed my opinion pre-tape study. Now, Nchukwe is not a guy that I know too much about, even though he came from the Contender Series, because there wasn't that much film on him on the original team. It was actually kind of hard to get. I mean, you get the William Knight fight and and, and, and one or two other fights, and, but also he had really quick finishes, so you can't really uh, you know, grasp too much. Now, despite originally being a heavyweight, now he's all the way down to middleweight, he's still kind of short for the weight class. Uh, he is built like his former opponent, William Knight, where he's who also did the same move from heavyweight down to middleweight. They're short, but have a huge frame, a huge chest, more wide than, you know, wide than length. Uh, but this guy just absolutely clubs. He's got huge hands, and he crushes you if he if he touches you, just throws hammers at you. Uh, but he's athletic. He's athletic for his stature. You know, he's like, – like, this guy looks like he could play in the NFL. Like, he could be a fullback. In, or, you know, a middle linebacker. He's like a Zach Thomas, you know, shorter middle linebacker, just mean. Uh, he'll throw some spinning attacks in. I haven't seen him be too successful with them. I don't think they're more a waste of energy, but it's something that he does look for. But he does have a fast high kick. Like, he'll throw this high kick, and if he touches you, you get hit by this guy, by high kick. Forget it. Uh, I also like his clinch striking. He does well to create space in the in by framing and unloading power shots, but he also just can do it because he's so strong. He can kind of press guys against the cage and, you know, forget it. He just muscles you. Uh, he's known for his striking, but his takedown defense has been, you know, fairly okay. And a guy like William Knight was trying to take him down a lot. I don't think William Knight's a strong wrestler, but he has some wrestling, you know, does have a wrestling background. People pointed out that he slowed down in his last fight against Jimmy Pickett, which is true. But he also had a very high output early. So I don't really know if he has bad cardio or he or he has bad pacing. Because his output, if you just take the a glance of his output, the output is there. It was just all in the very first half. <laughs> so, you know, may and I actually think he'd become a better fighter if he can slow himself down. Um, not come out like a pit bull right out the gate. Now move over to Jung Young Park. Man, this guy, I, I don't really know how I feel about him because before, I, I, when he first came to UFC, like, I didn't think that highly of him. But his last two fights have been pr- pretty impressive to me. But he beat um, Barrio and John Phillips. Especially John Phillips. I mean, we we've gone on rants about how bad John Phillips is. Um, so I don't. It's it, he jumps off as looking so good on film, but he's faced the lowest level of UFC fighters. Uh, but what we've seen is he's a pretty good boxer. He throws tight combinations. He's best if he can get to the pocket. He will. But I also like it, like that's his aggressive style. But he also can sit back and counter strike uh, against Barrio. That's what he did. He stepped back a lot let Barrow come to him, and he picked up Barrow's timing fairly well. One thing I didn't like is that he kept trying to throw an uppercut, which if you connect while someone's coming in, it can be lights out. But if you don't, you're putting yourself in a danger zone, which we've seen. You know, The biggest example of that is the Rashad Evans-Chuck Liddell knockout. Uh, he mixes in low kicks. That's been a new thing of his game since the Barrow fight. Uh, 
and he's really this is the guy who wasn't known for his wrestling but he's been really working on his wrestling we saw him wrestling in both those fights especially the john phillips fight he knew he had a big advantage in the wrestling and he's become a pretty strong wrestler good at he was advancing position taking the back uh, strong ground and pound so this is a tough call because Njuko is is really raw. He's a raw product, but I feel like he has the higher ceiling. He has just a natural huge advantage in power and athleticism. But Park is more seasoned, and he's probably the better wrestler, definitely at least offensively. I'm going to say Park gets a few takedowns. I'd say he wins a close battle, and this will be one of those early losses in someone's career that Nchuko gets. So give me Park in a slight upset pick. Uh, and I'll take him by split decision. All right. I mean, right out the door, uh, you know, n- no suspense here. I'm with you. I, I, I have Park in this one. I would feel even better about picking Park if not for the fact that Nchukwi showed no gas problems against Jamie Pickett. It was his first uh, fight at the new weight class, and he thrashed Pickett in the third round. I mean, Granted, he had already put an accumulation of, of damage on him, but, it, I mean, it was a borderline, if not an outright 10-8 round. So, because my, my initial inclination was to think that, you know, the longer this goes, it probably does favor Park. And I still think it does in the sense that Park will probably start uh, rolling downhill a bit in terms of uh, finding the rhythm and timing and just getting the better of the striking exchanges. If Nchukwi tires out at all, it will make it even easier for Park to get the takedowns. But, you know, the, the one time it was tested, and, and Chukwi, he looked okay in the third round. Like, his his pace slowed, you know, as you pointed out. Like, his output was certainly not the same from the first round to the third. But it's not as though he had this just Alonzo Menafield, like, hit the wall and just it's all over. Uh, I, liked, I, I, I like you. I like the fact that uh, Park has been turning more and more to uh, to his wrestling. I liked it in the John Phillips fight, but he was better than Phillips everywhere. So he, I think, I feel as though he just took the path of least resistance to get a dominant win. I really liked it in the Barrio fight because Barrio is a big, strong uh, middleweight, and generally nobody has had great success grounding him. Like he has decent takedown defense, uh, but Park was able to get him down a, a couple of times and really made the best of it. I expect that he'll be able to do that to Njukwi. There's always the chance he'll get caught with something huge early and just get flatlined. But I am picking him to survive an early onslaught from Njukwi, start to get the better of the striking, and if he needs to, can turn to his wrestling and get this to the ground and get himself out of danger. It may not be super pretty, but give me Jun Yong Park by decision as well. Next up, it is the flyweights as Ryan Benoit takes on Zaruk Adashev in a fight that uh, probably does have uh, roster status implications for both men. Benoit, the 31-year-old, is 10 and 7 overall. He is 3 and 5 in the UFC, and he is coming into this matchup off of back-to-back losses. He dropped a split decision to Alatang Haley at UFC Fight Night 165 back in December of 2019. Came back last summer and lost a unanimous decision to Tim Elliott at UFC on ESPN 13 in July. Uh, Adashev, the 28-year-old fighting out of New York, is an even 3-3 three and three in his mixed martial arts career. He is 0-2 in the UFC, uh, having lost 
to Tyson Nam via first round, like 30 second knockout last June at UFC on ESPN 10, then came back this January and dropped a unanimous decision to sue Mudarji at the UFC on ESPN Chiesa versus Magni card. Uh, odds in this one do favor Benoit. He is minus 140, Adashev around plus 120 as the underdog. Uh, Keith, not the highest level fight uh, on the card, you know, but who you got in this one? Well, I always like flyweights. Like flyweights, regardless of what's going to happen, you know it's going to be entertaining. Guys move around super fast. Uh, we'll start with Benoit. He's obviously the commodity we know a lot better. He's been in the UFC for a long time. It's it's hard to gauge him though because he's had so many injuries and he's been so inactive. And every single time he seems like he gets the ball rolling, something else bad happens to him. Uh, he's also been on the wrong end of some close decisions, which don't help him. Uh, but what we see him, what I like him, he's a very explosive athlete. He's got some very tight boxing, uh, good head movement because he has a very bob and weave style. As a and what I mean by bob and weave, if you don't know what I mean. Uh, back and forth, always bouncing off the center line, uh, similar to um, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson had more of a peekaboo, Bob and Weave is kind of combination, but something like that. Uh, that's what he likes to do. So he has a lot of movement that way. He's got good power. And, and oh, let me back up before everybody says something in the comments. I'm not saying Ryan Benoit is Mike Tyson. I was just talking, <laughs> I was using an example of someone who uses a similar style. Uh, but, you know, good power. Especially for the division, I think he's one of the biggest punchers in the division. I love that he targets the body. He he understands that. I also love, and he he did this against Tim Elliott, and he's done in a lot of fights. He has this Robert Whitaker, and and again, I'm not calling him Robert Whitaker. I'm mean, using something that Robert Whitaker does: dip to the right, throwing, using your momentum to throw a high kick on the other side. It's in the Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker actually kind of does it the other way. He dips to his left and throws a high kick. Something he kept doing to Kelvin Gastelum. This is something Ryan Benoit does. One issue I have at him, especially at sometimes, especially at flyweight, is he can throw one strike at a time. He can look for the perfect punch, which is something you don't want to do at flyweight because so many guys have such high opot, like his last fight in uh, Tim Elliott. While he really wants to box, he'll he'll go to the ground. He's a very solid grappler. He's got some good entries. He's good at winning scrambles. He showed that he can defend takedown attempts against uh, Tim Elliott, who's a guy, you know, he's a good wrestler. Uh, despite, if you watch that fight, he almost knee barred Tim Elliott, where Tim Elliott was actually like grimacing in pain. That is an outlier for Ryan Bonnet. He's not a grappler. Uh, sorry, he's not a submission threat, actually. He's definitely a grappler. He's not a submission threat. He's more of a wrestling grappler. He has one submission on his record. I feel like he just got lucky at that one. I shouldn't say lucky, but, you know, things happen. You roll and. He ended up in a right position. Move over to, um, and you got to help me help me out with John Anik of our of our team, uh, Adashev. Adashev. Uh, so he only has, I think, he has six professional fights now. So he does not have much experience at all going against a guy like Ryan Bonoy, who has more than six fights already in the UFC. In uh, his run in the UFC, Adashev has been like a total disaster. Like it couldn't have been worse. And get to just to get into the UFC, this is what we talked about last time he fought. He's fought some extremely low-level guys, guys with terrible records. But when we talk about his skills, 
He's a southpaw. He tends to fight and burst kind of all the way out or all the way in style. When he gets to the pocket, he throws combos. So that's something like if he gets to the pocket and Ryan Benoit is looking for one strike and he throws four, like that can definitely win him a fight. One, he could get him a knockout, obviously, but also just adding points. And he does hit hard too. Like he he really can whip it. He also loves spinning attacks. He has a very Alexander Slomenko, Dennis Seaver style where he will throw like a spinning back kick, spinning back face. Like it does it a lot. I haven't seen too much of his grappling to, and I said this last time and I still kind of feel too much of his grappling to really give too much of a comment. Like, I don't know if he's, but he comes from a, I can't say, I don't know if he's that good at it, but he comes from a striking background. So until I see it, Usually I give the benefit of the doubt. In this case, I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt because, you know, his background is in striking. Usually stereotyping strikers aren't that good at grappling. Obviously, I'm not talking about all of them. Some of the best grapplers in MMA history are also great strikers and vice versa. Prediction? Benoit should win this fight. He really should. He's the more well-rounded fighter. He has faced the much, much higher level of competition. Adash have looked terrible so far in the UFC. And in fairness, even though he's he's lost all his UFC fights, I feel like this is actually a step up in competition since his last fight. Uh, even though, you know, when you look at Benoit's record, you might not think that. Well, Benoit's record has some he's, – he's fought some studs. So that's why his record is what it is. So I say Benoit is smart, gets the fight to the ground, and uh, I say he takes him out by second round TKO from ground and pound. When I look at Adashev, he's a perfect example of the difference between the Bellator model of prospect development and the UFC model. Because Bellator signed him as a 1-0 mixed martial artist. They matched him up three times with ultra-low level competition and just sort of brought him along slowly. Then the UFC snapped him up and just threw him straight into the shark tank. Like, Tyson Nam and Sumadarji are both good flyweights. Uh... <clears throat> And, yeah, he's just completely – it's hard to even find very many bright spots in, uh, in his UFC run so far. Uh, Benoit has a bunch of question marks uh, around him. You know, he's, he's moving into his 30s, and like you say, he's been chronically injured. He, this will be his ninth fight in eight years in the UFC. That's not a great look. He's better than his record looks. You know, a, a couple of his uh, losses were really competitive decisions to good fighters – and obviously he has a couple of fantastic, I mean, some of the better no- highlight reel knockouts in the history of the flyweight division that doesn't typically give us a ton of them. Uh, <clears throat> I honestly expect him to be better at just about everything than, uh, than Adashev, except maybe, you know, throwing in volume and in combinations on, on the feet. Like there it's going to be a contrast of styles as Benoit really does like to wait for his kill shot. But I think he's going to find it. I have Benoit by second round TKO as well, but I'm going to say he just like lamps him with something on the feet and this thing is over. Uh, I don't know what his ceiling is in the division. Like I say, he, it's been really hard for him to stay busy and the division has basically grown up around him and passed him and left him in the dust since he joined. Like he's been in the UFC since 2013. You know, he was in the UFC when there were probably like 10 flyweights in the whole UFC and it's exploded into one of the most exciting divisions in the UFC around him. So I don't know what his ceiling is or if he has a run in him, but I do expect him to pick up another 
a highlight reel knockout to go with the Mokhtarian and the Sergio Pettis knockouts. Uh, Ryan Benoit by second round knockout. Next up on the UFC Vegas 26 prelims, we have what is currently scheduled as of Wednesday night when we're recording this as a featherweight matchup between Ludovic Klein and Mike Trezano. It is anybody's guess whether that will be a catchweight or a de facto lightweight fight by the time they hit the cage. But let's treat it as advertised. Klein, the 26-year-old Slovakian, is 17-2 overall. He is 1-0 in the UFC, having absolutely steamrolled Shane Young at UFC 253 last September. That extended his overall win streak to eight straight. That was marred only by the fact that he missed weight by a whopping five pounds for the young five. He'll be welcoming back Trezano, the tough 27 winner who has been out almost exactly two years. Uh, Trezano is 8-1 and one overall. He is 2-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, having won the Ultimate Fighter 27 at lightweight, then uh, beaten fellow Tough 27 standout Luis Pena by split decision uh, back in November of 2018. His last fight, he dropped two featherweights and got choked out by Grant Dawson in the second round of their fight at UFC Fight Night Dos Anjos versus Lee. Uh, perhaps because of the opposite momentum or the long layoff Klein is one of the bigger favorites on the card he is minus 250 uh, Trezano is out there at plus 215 as the uh, as the underdog I've, I've got to say the, the the scale like is going to be half the suspense to me like it's really obvious in Klein's case he he blew weight badly last time we'll see if he does this time and then Trezano was a guy who even at the time when he dropped to featherweight, I was like, I don't understand why. Because he was an undefeated lightweight, and he's not a physically small lightweight. He's, uh, I mean, he's not titanic. He was smaller than Luis Pena, but everybody in the division smaller than Luis Pena. Honestly, to me, like, you know, you blank out the face. He looks like Edson Barboza, about a 5'10", 5'11 guy who has a great big V taper and, you know, fairly long arms and legs for the division. And... It's not as though Edson Barboza's problems are due to him being like shrimpy or easy to throw around. Like, I never understood why Trezano dropped him weight. And notably, in the Dawson fight, whatever he was dropping weight for did not help because his problem in the Dawson fight was he could not stop the takedown. Like, I mean, he stopped a few takedowns, but Dawson was so relentless, uh, kept him on the ground for most of the first round, grounded him again in the second round. And, you know, eventually took his back and, and choked him out. That's not the route to victory that Ludovic Klein is, is probably going to want to take on him. You know, you look at Klein's record and you're like, OK, wow, you know, 16 of 17 wins are finishes. You've got eight knockouts and eight submissions. But the submissions are all way back at the very beginning of his career when he's fighting in like Slovakia and Poland and Ukraine and stuff. Lately, it's been knockouts. And for the most part, not ground and pound knockouts. Like these are knockouts that have been either completed or at least set up on the feet. He just wants to punch. Uh, he is, I mean, he was a extremely short and blocky lightweight. He is a still a short and blocky at featherweight. The, I mean, the question for me will be whether he's able to navigate the range on Trezano. I feel as though Trezano, what Trezano wants to do 
in his fights is fight a bit of an out fight and fight a bit of a slow paced fight. He doesn't like people crashing the pocket on him. He doesn't like people with longer reach than him, but really that's just been Luis Pena. And he doesn't like people that march in on him and kind of impose a pace on him. I think Ludovic Klein is going to be able to do that. Uh, assuming Klein makes weight without uh, incident, assuming he's not just dead man walking on the scale and his kidneys are shutting down, uh, give me Ludovic Klein to find a way to navigate the, the range, get inside and clock Trezano sometime in the first two rounds. To be specific, I'll say give me Ludovic Klein by uh, second round TKO. All right, so Trezano, I'll start with him, you know, former Ultimate Fighter winner. Seems so weird to say that because he's been out for forever. I kind of kind of forget about the guy a little bit. And it, as you mentioned, he's been out for forever. It's really hard to grasp where he is. You have no idea. You know, he wasn't the highest level fighter when he left two years ago. Could he have improved? Absolutely. But if he stayed stale or even declined since then, this should be an easy fight for Klein. And looking at the betting lines, that's kind of where they're believe. You know, where they're you know putting their flag. They're saying that that's got to be the case. Now, Trezano, he's not a great athlete, but he's he's tricky because of his physique. He's a long and lengthy guy. To his credit, he throws straight punches. Like a lot of his punches are very technically straight. Um, he keeps his hands low, giving himself a big target though, and he doesn't check leg kicks. And, and that was two years ago. Now, calf kicks have come a long way since then. Um, but he can he can also grapple. He's kind of got a he's not a wrestler by any means, but he will grind against you, grab a body lock, grab the clinch, wear on you you know, shoulder strike you in the clinch. Uh, though, as you mentioned in his fight against Grant Dawson, he's not a good defensive wrestler. He seems like a guy who spent a lot of time grappling in a jiu-jitsu room where you don't really defend takedowns. But he's not bad at winning scramble. I mean, it's, he's not bad at in scrambles. He's good at winning scrambles, I should say. And he's a bit of a submission threat. He's got a couple of submission wins. On his career, and I'm not sure if he got any on the contender series. I mean, uh, excuse me, the Tough. ultimate fighter. I, I want to say they were all decisions on top. Were they really? Oh, that makes yeah. me less less inclined to take it. <laughs> now, moving to Klein. Klein's the opposite. Klein is very athletic. Southpaw. He's light on his feet. You, I love that he uses a lot of up and down feints, not just shoulder feints. I mean, like uh, he faint high, he faint low. Great jab. When he commits, he really steps out on his shots. Great power in his hands. Powerful leg kicks. Very fast high kick. I've seen some good high kick knockouts uh, on the regional scene. And he did struggle early. You mentioned some submissions early in his career. He also struggled with some takedown defense early in his career. However, the deeper, and, and a lot of these notes from his last fight I did on him, the deeper he went in, the more we saw improvement in his ground. So I'm assuming that he just has continued that. But in fairness, he hasn't faced a strong wrestler. And Trezano might be the best wrestler he's faced so far. He definitely is the best wrestler he's faced so far in the UFC. Yeah, he's only a second fight in the UFC. Uh, Trezano's a grinder. He could turn this into an ugly fight. However, if he doesn't close the distance quickly, I think he's going to get starched. And I think that happens too. Klein ran through Shane Young, who I like more than Trezano. So I expect it to happen again. 
give me Klein, and I'm going to say he happens to knock him out in the very first round. So I'm taking Klein. I hate taking a big favorite as my lock. You know, I like to try to be close in lines, but all in fantasy, all the lines are pretty close. So I'm locking in Klein uh, to get a stop. Uh, not not locking the stoppage, but locking in Klein as a no-brainer money in the bank. There you go. Two emphatic picks in favor of the Slovakian sensation to keep it rolling. We head back up to the middleweight division for a matchup between uh, two prospects who took the long way around to get to the UFC in the form of Phil Megatron Hawes and Kyle Dawkins. Hawes, the 32-year-old fighting out of Sanford MMA, is 10-2 and overall. He is 2-0 and in the UFC, having knocked out uh, Jacob Malkoon in just seconds last October and then taken a majority decision over Nasruddin Imavov at UFC Fight Night Blades versus Lewis in February. Uh, the aforementioned long way around to the UFC includes an appearance on The Ultimate Fighter Season 23 and then uh, two appearances on Dana White's Contender Series, the first of which he lost to Julian Marquez, uh, second of which he knocked out Kajimarat uh, Bestaev, and that was the one that punched his ticket to the octagon. He'll be taking on Dawkins, who is a 28-year-old fighting out of Philadelphia. He is 10-1 and overall. He is 1-1 and in the UFC, uh, having lost a decision to Brendan Allen in his debut, then come back to win a decision over Dustin Stoltzfus at UFC 255 last November. Uh, Dawkins was successful on Dana White's Contender Series Season 3 back in 2019, but did not receive an invitation to the UFC at that time. Uh, Dawkins, the slight favorite here, is minus 140, where you can get Hawes at plus 120. Uh, Keith, obviously with three total Dana White's Contender Series appearances between these two guys, I'm definitely going to flip it to you. But hey, man, you remember when... Uh, Kyle Dawkins was the main Dawkins, and Chris was the other Dawkins. That's right. And that's just kind of been flipped on its head in the last year. Good point, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, talk to me about these guys and who you think is going to win. This is a really good matchup. and I know I'm saying that a lot. Uh, this is one of the ones that I am most intrigued. I would say second or third on the list of ones I'm, I'm very excited about. Uh, I'll start with Phil Oz. He was a one-time extremely hyped-up prospect, seemed to fail, but now he's kind of living up to the hype. Explosive, incredible athlete. On the feet, he's very aggressive, fast hands, works behind a jab, earth-crushing, earth-shattering power when he lands a power blow. Does very well to keep his head off the center line, uh, though in his last fight, he was hurt by uh, Nasruddin bad, but still found a way to recover. Powerful leg kicks. If it goes to the ground, it's probably because he took you down because he's a very explosive, good wrestler, junior college national champion, lightning fast entries, will drive right through your sprawl, which I absolutely love. Very Josh Koscheck style, Gregor Gillespie style to his wrestling. Good ground control if it gets you down. Uh, decent back takes. He still needs to conserve his energy a little bit. He throws hard, and that drains him. But what I love, and I'm going to go back to the Nasruddin. How do I say his last name? Am, am I Ibovov. Ibovov. 
That's right. <laughs> I, I can't even get the guys on this card right. I'm definitely not going to get guys in fast cards right. Uh, even my off. What I love is Phil Hawes was hurt bad in that fight. And in the past, he would have lost. But he found a way to survive. Like He's showing some maturity. He seems like he's turning the corner of his career. And he was a guy that I was disappointed with that now I'm pretty high. Like I'm like leading the boss on this guy. But then I like Dawkins too. Like this is another guy I like. Uh, but very different styles. Dawkins is southpaw. Very technically sound. I, he keeps his hands a little bit low. But he stays so relaxed and composed. You could tell he's had so many rounds in sparring. Nothing, nothing really phases him. He will just stalk his prey. Work behind a fast jab. Very accurate left hand. When he lands it. He just touches and touches and touches, and then when an opening presents itself, power shot. That's stuff that the best strikers do. That's what Israel Adesanya does. Again, I'm not calling him Israel Adesanya. I'm just saying things. one aspect that he does similar to him. Uh, he, 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 I would say he has plus power. He's done, he doesn't have Phil Hall's power by any means. Not many people do. But he has plus power because of how technically sound he is, and he and when he knows when an opening's there, he'll sit down on his punch and really, you know, that's when you overthrow. That's when you throw your big shot. Nice long kicks. Uh, based on his, you know, being a southpaw, the the shots to the liver are there. He'll throw that body kick, which could be open against a guy like Hawes who fights from an orthodox stance. He He's a good grappler. He's... Definitely a submission threat. He's got eight submission wins on his career. And it's funny because he has more submission wins than he has, you know, TKOs and stuff. But I still I still look at him more of a striker, probably because of how much I like his striking. Uh, but when he gets you, it's guillotine chokes, star strokes. He likes to chase the neck, as they call it, on the ground. He will lose position chasing a submission that's not there. And I have two major issues with him. After I've said all these nice things about him, one that we showed against Brandon Allen is if he gets taken down, he plays jiu-jitsu. There was many times he had a chance to scramble. He struggles to get back up. He plays jiu-jitsu. And also he's been rocked a lot in the past. Even though he's such a good striker, he's been hurt a lot. So as far as prediction goes, if this stays on the feet, this could be incredibly interesting. Uh, really, really fun affair. I mean, it comes down to Hall's speed and power versus Doc is just superior technique. However, Dawkins really struggled with a wrestler like Brandon Allen, and Hawes is a much, much more accomplished, better wrestler than than Brandon Allen was, and better than anybody Dawkins ever faced. I I don't know if Hawes is going to take the chance and and really stand up with him. He very well might, but in the back of my mind, he got cracked his last fight, and he's got to have seen. What happened to Dawkins against Brandon Allen? I say he goes a smart route, wrestles a lot. I expect him to get some takedowns, but I also expect him to fade a little late because of how wrestling heavy he could be. And Dawkins has moments late, but I think it might be a little too late. So give me Hawes and give me Hawes by decision in, in one of my favorite fights of the night. I love this fight as well. And when the odds came out, nothing would have surprised me. Uh, just because depending on how you think they're going to fight each other but the stylistic uh contrast could really favor one guy or the other because you know there's no there's no saying whether 
uh, Haas is going to fight to his best advantage. I, I agree with you that, you know, looking for the takedown probably from the first round on is his best route to victory. But if you had those hands, wouldn't you be a little bit in love with them? I mean, you know, if, if you have the possibility of making it a short night of work, which he's clearly shown that he has, like, wouldn't you at least try it a little bit? And that's, you know, that's what it kind of hinges on for me. Uh, both of these guys, their their losses are, I mean, no loss is good, but they're excusable. I mean, Brendan Allen is a guy that we've now put into the Sherdog Top 15. Like, I'll be, and, and you and I were both on board with that. We both think uh, Allen is probably just, like, you know, a cut above these two guys as, you know, one of the top younger guys in the middleweight division. But you look back at, at Haas's losses, it turns out Julian Marquez is pretty damn good. And he, in particular, Julian Marquez is good at what he did to Phil Haas, which was come back on a tired guy and and put him away. And then, I mean, at the time, man, he fought Lewis Taylor in his fifth fight. Lewis Taylor's never been an absolute world beater, but he is a wily, tough dude with a huge bag of tricks. And that was literally his fifth guillotine, guillotine choke submission in a row, the one that he hit on Phil Haas. Like, <laughs> the PFL champion. Yeah, yeah, Lewis Taylor, PFL millionaire. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Haas is way better since then. I love that you use the term turning a corner because, yeah, he's 32, but, you know, uh, just a, a week after we talked about uh, Dominic Reyes and Yuri Prohaska, you know, Dominic Reyes is 32 with, like, 12 fights, and Yuri Prohaska is 29 with, like, 30 fights. Which guy is really older in terms of, like, his moving parts? Uh, Haas is 32, doesn't have a ton of fights, and if he if his top gear as an athlete has slipped at all, I sure haven't seen it. He is still a dazzling athlete. And as you pointed out, it shows in his striking as well as his wrestling. I'm with you. I, I have the feeling that he's actually going to test his fortunes on the feet. You know, I, I, I don't think Haas is going to shoot a takedown on the first round unless Dawkins hurts him bad. And if he does, and then, you know, he dives straight into uh, a takedown on Dawkins, there's any, you know, there's, it's anybody's fight. Uh, Dawkins, he has eight submissions, like five of them are Dar's chokes, and at least two or three of those are him grabbing a front headlock on a guy that shot a reactive takedown on him. Like, that is a way that Kyle Dawkins wins fights. Uh, but I'm, I'm picking Hawes to, I mean, he might get the worst of it in the first round, but not so bad that it's fight ending or fight altering starts to embrace his, his wrestling by late in the first round or early in the second and give me Phil Hawes to win two rounds. But I think it's going to be a fantastic fight the whole way. Cause even if Hawes gets easy takedowns, Dawkins is active off his back. It, it's not going to win him rounds, but it's going to make those, uh, those periods of ground fighting a lot more fun for us. You know, as Hawes tries to secure his position, tries to advance position, tries to land punishment, as Dawkins is very active with his guard, looking to sweep or submit. I'm I'm excited for that. Uh, despite all the stuff that's going on up the card from this, this is actually my pick for fight of the night, and give me Phil Hawes by decision. That brings us to the featured prelim and the first of two heavyweight fights on this card, as we get some, well, some heated up leftovers from a couple months ago. Uh, ben Rothwell takes on Felipe Linz in a fight that was originally scheduled for March 13th and had to be pushed back. They now meet this Saturday. Rothwell, the 39-year-old, is 38 and 13 overall. He is 8 and 7 
in the UFC. He is on, well, not really any kind of streak. He lost a unanimous decision to Marcin Tybura last October at UFC Fight Night 179. Uh, that snapped a two-fight win streak for him uh, in which he had beaten Ovent St. Pru during OSP's brief sojourn at heavyweights and before that had knocked out Stefan Struve. He'll be taking on Linz. The 2018 PFL champ is 35 years old. He is 14-5 and overall. He is 0-2 since joining the UFC, again, as the outgoing PFL champ. He lost a, a unanimous decision to Andre Arlovsky in his UFC debut back in May of 2020, turned around six weeks later and got knocked out by Tanner Bozer in the first round at UFC on ESPN, Poirier versus Hooker. Uh Perhaps for that reason, these guys are close to even money, but it is Rothwell, the slight favorite. Uh, he is minus 115. Linz is out there, uh, minus 105. You can't quite get him at even money. Uh, Keith, who do you like in this fight, if anybody? Yeah, this is, this is a tough one. Um, neither guy has looked too good recently. We'll start with Ben Rothwell. He's been around forever. You know, he's massive, burly, heavyweight. He's kind of stiff, kind of lumbering. He has a very awkward striking style, which wasn't... He's always been a little awkward, but it's, it's really, <laughs> like, been exaggerated since his, you know, like his return back to the UFC after a long layoff. He throws some weird angles. He kind of dips his head to one side and then tacks uh, with punches on the other side. A lot of arm punches... But despite throwing arm punches, he still generates pretty good power. And that's just because he's a huge, massive dude, you know. Um, but what I like about him, well, he's really, his, his power has kind of declined, even though I just said he still generates power and his technique declines. His output has gone up since he's returned to the UFC. He constantly presses forward, walks through punches. His chin has been holding up. Um and he just has a high output. Now, kicks, which was at one point was a big part of Ben Rothwell's game, especially his high kick. Like, I was actually at a PFL in Mohegan Sun where he, um, I think it was maybe Devin Clark, maybe, that he high kicked him. And I was sitting in the front row, and I think it was fell on top of me. I was like, it was that close to me. Uh, that part of his game is just gone. Like, he threw one high kick against Marcin Tybora. In his last fight, and he, he threw it, he like stumbled over and fell. Like like uh, like, like the fat kid in in gym class trying to like do a cartwheel. Like it was it was really bad. Uh, he's he's got good takedown defense. He's always has. He's taking. I was looking over his stats, which you know I'm not one of these guys who pull out stats. I I don't I don't believe it. I you'll never. Well, I shouldn't say never, but. You hardly ever hear me argue a scorecard based on people's stats because I think stats can, can be very deceiving. I think stats – I don't know why I'm going this on this rant right now, but uh, not all significant strikes are equal. You know, uh, what is a significant strike? Could one guy hitting a button behind <laughs> behind scenes at the UFC considered – you know, counts what a significant strike is. Back to the topic. The reason why I'm going to start talking about some stats with Ben Rothwell for a second – He's been taking out one time in eight years. Like that's really impressive. Now, mind you, he had a big long layoff in between there, but that's that's still pretty impressive. Um, he used to look for takedowns, but that's almost never a thing anymore. But he has six submission wins. 
he and people will talk about he did slow against Martin Tybura, but he still threw 287 strikes at heavyweight, which is like massively high uh, for the division. I mean, it's high for any division, never mind the heavyweight. Now, move over to Linz. Man, he has not looked good in the UFC. He's only had two fights, but he looked terrible in both of them. He's not very athletic. He looks flat-footed. I, I watched some fights when he was in the PFL, and he, his hand speed has... I said it last time, and it looks like he's going down. Even, like his hand speed looked like it is really decreased. He's a low-output striker because he likes to counter-strike. A lot of single strikes when he does. His strikes are looping. He keeps his chin high in the air. And as Michael Bisming pointed out in his last fight, Tanner Bowser really roughed up his legs before the knockout. He wasn't checking him at, at all. No, he is a Brazilian just to black belt. And he did show some, some of the ground in the PFL, but there was like a, there was a lot of sloppy exchanges. It wasn't it wasn't very pretty. It wasn't Fabricio Verdue on the ground. And last, I'm also a little worried about his chin. His last fight, he was knocked out cold. And then not only was he knocked out, it was a little bit of a late stoppage. Like Tanner Bozier landed some big power shots while he was knocked out. I'm not high on either. Both are probably fighting for their job at this point. Lynch probably still has a KO power advantage. You know, thinking back to his PFL days. But Ralphel's going to turn this into a high output affair, which Linz doesn't want. And I can't believe I'm doing this in 2021. But give me Ben Rothfeld by decision. I really wanted and hoped and expected that uh, Felipe Linz was going to be better when he came to the UFC. You know, I thought he had a good run in PFL. Well, obviously, he had a pretty good run. He got a million-dollar check. But he beat some good guys. Like, Jared Rocheholt at the time, might have been the best heavyweight outside the UFC. Like, he's not fun to watch, but he's just... Anyway, he, he's Jared Rochelle. Josh Copeland does not suck. Alex Nicholson, he's terrible as a human being, but he's not a complete dead fish as, as a fighter. And I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yeah, and, and Linz finished them all. Uh, I liked him. Just He, he came up from, from light heavyweight, but unlike somebody we'll talk about later on this card, he didn't just do it by growing a belly. Like, he actually grew into kind of a 235-pound heavyweight body. I thought that was probably a good move. And yeah, whether it's... The injury that kind of left him out for all of 2019 or something else. Yeah, he, like his, his hand speed is down. He just doesn't look like the same guy that won the PFL tournament. And, you know, obviously there could be any number of explanations for that. But if you're coming in there against Ben Rothwell and you don't have a particular hand and foot speed advantage against him, it's going to be rough sledding. As you pointed out, like Rothwell has become more of a volume striker. And Linz never has been. He's always been a, a, a wait-and-throw guy. I actually feel strongly enough about this one, and I'm concerned enough about uh, Linz's chin that I, I'm picking Rothwell to finish this one. Give me Ben Rothwell to uh, beat Felipe Linz. I think it's going to take an accumulation of damage. So give me uh, Ben Rothwell by third-round TKO. The UFC on ESPN 24 main card kicks off with a strawweight attraction between Amanda Hebas and Angela Hill. Hebas, the 27-year-old Brazilian, is 10-2 overall. She's 4-1 in the UFC, having won her first four fights with the promotion over Emily Whitmire, 
Mackenzie Dern, which was a bit of her coming out party as a future contender, Randa Marcos, and Paige Van Zandt. She took her first octagon loss back in January of this year, getting knocked out in the second round by Marina Rodriguez, though that was quite the controversial finish, which we'll probably get to in more detail before we talk about uh, Rodriguez later this evening. She'll be taking on Hill. Uh, the 36-year-old Marylander by way of San Diego is 13-9 and nine overall. She is 8-9 and nine across two separate stints with the UFC. She is also a graduate of Season 20 of The Ultimate Fighter and a former Invicta FC strawweight champ. Odds in this one do favor Hebas. She is minus 175. Hill is out there plus 150, plus 155 or so. Keith? Uh... Who wins this one? This is another really, really fun match. This is one I'm really looking forward to. Uh, Hill, Hill is the one that she's had like a roller coaster ride in the UFC. Like when she first came off the uh, Ultimate Fighter show, the little buzz on her, then she kind of failed. She was going. Then she came in from Invicta, won the title, kind of got a little buzz back. Then she started off like had this long losing streak. Then suddenly she turned into this Sam Alvey, Donald Cerrone, whatever, whoever you want to call taking, you know, Kevin Holland taking a fight all the time. And but even that started like you win when you lose it. But then she started like winning quality big fights, and you're like, wow, this girl's actually pretty talented. Now we actually talk about her style. She's a she's a Muay Thai striker, light on her feet. She likes to work from the outside of the feet. Chris Jab. She can often overextend on her strikes, leaving her open to counter strikes. Uh, but she does well to keep her head off the center line. Uh, she has that. She has like a dipping right hook she likes to throw. Nice check left hook that she uses to keep her distance. I like that she went, uh, even though she lost the fight i think the claude Cadelia fight was one that really opened my eyes to her skill set like she went to the body against claude Cadelia, which i liked and one thing about her besides being an out fighter which she's most known for the clinch game has really become a strength of hers you don't really think of angela hill as like a dirt dog kind of fighter but she really is like she'll get in that clinch she'll use her head you know she'll use her head to you know have quality head position and then she just gets busy in there. Nice knees, nice punches in the clinch. Um, but her takedown defense is still a weakness. I mean, it has greatly improved over the years, but it's still a big weakness. Uh, she, she struggle, And she struggles when she gets on the bottom. And I think about Raina Marcos taking her down, Claudia Gadea, even Michelle Watterson. So that that is definitely an issue. Now move over to Amanda Hibas. Very athletic, uh, very well-rounded. She's a high-output striker. She's also light on her feet, great fluidity in her strikes. She's fast. She's accurate. She's good at she, – I wouldn't say she's as good of an outstriker as uh, – I shouldn't say – I don't know if she's as good, but I, she doesn't need to be on the out. That's what I should say. She's good at all ranges because she's very good at keeping her – She's very good at finding her range. That's what I should just say. She's good at finding her range. Uh, she'll throw some fun stuff, like a spinning back kick. If she gets to the clinch, which Angel Hill is good in, Angel Hill uses that more to strike. He best gets to, stri- gets to the clinch. She has a judo background, hip throws, 
body lock takedowns. She has some heavy top pressure on the ground, works to better the position, and she she's a submission threat. She got four submissions on her career. And she went against Mackenzie Dern, and there was portions where she went to the ground with Mackenzie Dern, and she did well. She was probably out grappling Mackenzie Dern, which is a you know huge feather in her cap. Uh, if she's taken down, she's pretty good on her back getting submissions. And if she's on top, I, I don't know if I want to say violent ground and pound, but like relentless. She understands like even though they're blocking, it looks good. If I can just throw punches that they're blocking, I can still get a stoppage. As far and they'll, as they'll like, never stand it up. That's yeah, and they'll never. That's another good point. They'll never stand it up. Good point. Uh, as far as who am I taking? I'm taking Hebus. Uh, I the Marina Rodriguez knockout loss. You know, had a bunch of people jumping off the bandwagon. That felt fluky to me. She was. This is what happens to young fighters. She was winning the fight before that. She got caught. I still see a girl as a star in the division based on her skills and her personality. She's a great personality. Get her on the mic. She's a lot of fun. Uh, she has a huge ceiling. I think as long as that loss hasn't crushed her, and, and, and she crushed her confidence, I should say, I think she can have success both on the feet and the ground, but especially the ground. And she showed against in before against Rodriguez, who has a whole holes in the ground that she's willing to go to your weakness, get you to the ground. I think she'll do that against Hill. I think she's going to out-wrestle Hill. I think when she gets her down, I think she'll land some heavy ground and pound, busy ground and pound. Hill's so tough that I don't. I'm not going to call a stoppage, but I say Hebas wins the decision. I think it's going to be a fairly easy one, and I think it's going to be a blowout. So give me Hebas in a blowout decision. Uh, much as you know, I, I I hate to say it, I'm I'm with you on this one. This is a, a matchup that I think favors Hebas stylistically in some kind of sneaky ways. I'm absolutely with you in that. Uh, Hill's clinch has gotten better and better over the last, you know, four or five years of her career. It's gone from, you know, being kind of a safe hangout place for her to a place where she will actually get offense going. Like, as impressive as it is that Amanda Hebas, you know, won some of those ground sequences against Mackenzie Dern, it's similarly impressive to me that Angela Hill beat Loma Lagunmi, and she did it by making the clinch an unsafe place for a multi-time, like, world Muay Thai champ. Like that, that's, that's a feather in her cap. The problem for me is that when she and Hebus get into the clinch, they're going to have two different goals. Like Hill's goal is going to be to open Hebus up for like strikes to the body and legs. And Hebus is, is going to be to get an underhook or two underhooks and throw Hill on the ground. And uh, like when those two forces collide, stylistically, I think Hebus is going to get the better of that. Uh, the Hebus the versus Rodriguez fight, obviously that's, like, it was a weird finish, but Hebus was taking care of Rodriguez up until right until the very end. And then even the end became weird because, like, Herb Dean went crashing into them, but then, like, didn't stop the fight and kind of restarted it. It was weird. Uh, but that was a case of Hebus really tooling someone that you can say stylistically is maybe just a slightly refined version of Hill. So if, if she can do that to Rodriguez, then I have to believe she's going to be able to do it to, to Hill. I'm with you in that Hill is just one of the toughest, most determined women in the division. The fact that she's never been stopped on strikes after you've seen some of the people she's fought over the years says a lot. Uh, Hill can always, you know, step up and and surprise me from time to time. But 
generally speaking, it's not been in the positive way that she surprises me. You know, she's dropped a few fights to people that she probably should have beaten. Uh, I've got Hebus in this one as well. And yeah, give me Hebus by, by a pretty straightforward, pretty one-sided decision that gets her right back on track as a future contender, maybe very near future contender. It's a high-stakes matchup in the lightweight division as Diego Ferreira takes on Gregor Gillespie. Ferreira, the 36-year-old Brazilian by way of Texas's Rio Grande Valley, is 17-3 and overall. He is 7-3 and in the UFC. He fought most recently back in February at UFC Fight Night Overeem versus Volkov, where he lost a split decision to Benil Dariush. That uh, snapped a six-fight win streak for Ferreira. Uh, in his entire UFC tenure, he has only lost to Darius twice in very close fights and then by knockout to Dustin Poirier. Uh, he will be welcoming back to the UFC uh, Gregor Gillespie. The 34-year-old fighting out of New York is 13-1 and overall. Uh, he did just suffer his first career loss back in November of 2019 by a highlight reel first round head kick knockout against Kevin Lee. That was all the way back at UFC 244, Masvidal versus Diaz. He has been off ever since, and welcoming him back is a pretty tall order in the form of Fajera. Uh, despite that, Gillespie is the favorite uh, here. He is minus 175, where you can get Fajera at plus 155. I should also mention that uh, Gillespie had been scheduled to come back against Brad Riddell back on March 20th. That one uh, was scotched at the last minute because of some... COVID-related protocol. I'm not sure whether we ever got the details on which fighter that was connected to, but at any rate, they both headed off in opposite directions, uh, you know, and different opponents. I I think it wasn't it uh, connected to Volkanovski and that whole team thing. Was... Thank you. That's exactly what it was. It was Volkanovski and Brad Riddell as one of his primary training partners uh, but, got pushed off. But somehow, Malar uh, Jamie Malarkey stayed on the card. Yeah, maybe I know Malarkey's he... just. I know his main training camp isn't with Volkanovski, or this, I think he trains at the other gym. But maybe that's it's that whole like Australia thing that they all train together, and you know, Australia, New Zealand. I don't know. And and those guys that don't mess around, Australia, New Zealand, don't mess around with COVID. No, nope. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Gillespie, you know, I I feel as and you feel this even more than me because you're the guy who from probably two years back has been telling had been telling the sure dog rankings panel that we'd been overranking Gillespie a little bit. And, you know, regardless of how you feel about that, he definitely took a bit of a fast track to his first top 10 opponents in the UFC. I mean, look no further than Fajera where his only losses in the UFC are to Darius and uh, Dustin Poirier. And everybody even forgets to mention him as like one of the top contenders in the division. And Gillespie, just from being an NCAA wrestling champ and from being undefeated coming in, I feel as though he, he kind of jumped the line. Uh, and whatever his ceiling is, Kevin Lee was too much too soon. The problem here is he's not being given much of a bounce back. Like that fight with uh, Darius, I don't think that did anything other than make Fajera grouchy. He is now, like, Fajera is now 36 uh, as a lightweight. Even though his game does not especially run on fast-twitch athleticism, especially for such a small lightweight as he is, nonetheless, like, at 36 as a lightweight, you, you know, your window is limited. Part of that is his own fault. You know, he, 
he missed two years with the USADA suspension, but he has to know that time is tight. Uh, this is a tough fight for Gillespie. They, uh, Lee was a bad matchup for Gillespie in you know, other ways. Like Lee is a massive lightweight. When he wants to be, he's one of the best wrestlers in the division. You know, he doesn't have the credentials of Gillespie, but between being a good wrestler in his own right and probably being a 20-pound bigger man, you know, he had the ability to stymie Gillespie's wrestling, which is maybe why Gillespie didn't really try to get it to the ground. And then obviously Lee, a much, much better striker, and Gillespie's problem all along has been that he just charges headlong. Like his his striking coming up was so reckless. I think mostly because he thought he and knew he had the wrestling in his back pocket. If he runs straight at Fajera, he's going to get knocked out. You know, Fajera's a uh, well-schooled uh, boxer and kickboxer. Like, you know, he, he, he has not the straightest punches in the world, but he's not a windmill machine. He throws good kicks to the legs and to the body. Uh, there's certainly every possibility that Gillespie could take him down. You know, Gillespie still has a fantastic just cannonball double leg. Uh, he is good at chaining his uh, takedowns. If, if the double leg doesn't work, he will switch to a single, try to run the pipe. Uh, there's certainly a chance he can get Fajeda down. Fajeda defensive wrestling is decent. But, you know, Fajeda is a fantastic ground fighter. He's uh, an outstanding uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. I just don't see many safe places for Gillespie here. I don't know where he's at uh, mentally after, you know, suffering, suffering a crushing loss, the first loss of his career. But I just think Fajera is a better fighter at this point in their respective, um, in, in their respective developments. It's two guys that know that they're on a limited time schedule. Like Gillespie is way behind where he should be as a 34 year old in terms of working up the, the lightweight ladder. Fajera knows that, you know, he just took another close loss at a really inopportune time. But yeah, this one for me has got uh, Fajera written all over it. Uh, give me Diego Fajera by second round submission. I'm going to say he hurts Gillespie on the feet. Gillespie shoots uh, desperation takedown and Fajera either takes his back and chokes him out or just snares him in a guillotine or, uh, you know, uh, or a Darce choke. Yeah, wow. Um, so, oh, and this is my upset special. It's not a huge underdog, but uh, there aren't many huge underdogs on this card, and this is my pick. That's true. That is true. So, uh, I want to talk about the rankings things real quick. So, Greg Gillespie was ranked by us. It's it's funny because since I've been with Sure Dog, I've kind of had two big battles in the rankings, uh, and Greg Gillespie is actually the probably the lesser one, and that was me saying that I don't think he would rank. It had nothing to do on, on Gregor Gillespie as a person and, and what I think about him as an athlete and as, as a fighter. I just was saying, like, what he has actually accomplished isn't worth ranking. I felt like we were ranking him more on his potential. And a lot of that has to do with Division One NCAA wrestler. Listen, you're not going to find anybody who loves NCAA wrestling more than I do. Like, I love it. I it, When it comes down to, you know, every year when it's the – head-to-head UFC show in the NCAA finals on ESPN every year, I'm watching the NCAA finals with, like, the UFC kind of in the background. Now, UFC is my first love, but it's, like, especially me, it's once a year that I really get to watch this event. I'm watching the I'm watching the semifinals. I'm watching – I'm on, you know, I got the on my phone watching 
ESPN three and all these different weird websites I got to go to. So I'm all into it. So, and it's so funny that like I'm getting this reputation as like being anti wrestler. Like you, usually I'm the complete opposite. I was like, oh, he always picks a wrestler. Uh, the other thing about Greg Gillespie that always bothers me that you just mentioned, he's 34. Like he's been out for a long time. He's had some injuries. Like everything went kind of wrong. And I kind of feel like we might have missed his prime already, which is kind of sad. You know, um, the other real quick, the other big argument in the rankings is somehow I'm like the biggest Demetrius Johnson fan. And I'm really not. <laughs> but uh, I apparently am higher on him than most of the Sherdog staff members. Anyways, back to Greg Gillespie. The other thing about it is he's undersized. We've said it for a long time. He's in probably the best division in the UFC, and he probably should be a featherweight. On the feet, because we'll talk about his rest in a second, but on the feet, this is a guy that, and and I said this, and a lot of my notes could be very similar to the Brad Riddell, because we broke him down, and then the fight didn't happen, so nothing has changed. He hasn't fought since, but he lands punches more because people are worried about his wrestling. So it kind of like surprises you when he's throwing punches. He has a busy jab. He showed in the Andrew Holbrook fight that he can knock you out if he lands a clean shot. That's what happens. You're, you're an elite athlete. You're an NCAA Division One champion. You're an elite athlete. Other than Ben Askren. Everybody else is an elite athlete. He tends to telegraph his punches a little bit because um, he's raw. He's not a seasoned striker. And he also can sometimes not throw enough. Like he faint a little too much instead of like just throwing output. He doesn't move his head. He keeps his head on the center line. He keeps his chin high. And I'm worried, as you mentioned, I'm worried about his chin after getting, I mean, he got knocked dead by Kevin Lee. But I'm also worried about his psyche. If you've never, you know, the first time he ever lost, he's never been knocked out. It was a huge pay-per-view event. Knocked, I mean, it was, and not only was it, it was a devastating fashion. When it was a highlight reel. That's like Kevin Lee. That's Kevin Lee's highlight forever. That's his guilt. He'll never top that one. Now, on the ground, he is absolute elite wrestler, Division One NCAA champion, gets you down, smothering top control. Um, one one fight I was watching, DC was like just going crazy about his top control, like how good he is. Like People don't understand how good a D1 NCAA champion wrestler is. And of course, he has his like go-to classic wrestling submission, your head and arm triangle. Moving on, Carlos Diego Ferrer. We still, still call him Carlos. I, I still call. Am I the well, one who still calls him Carlos? He just calls himself Diego. Yeah. Ferreira, so I, I changed him in, in the short yeah. fight finder. Everybody. Yeah. I, I think I'm the only one in the IRL that still calls me. By me, me and his mother still call him Carlos Diego Ferrer. Uh, so Diego Ferrer, uh We talked about Greg Gillespie in the size. So was he. Like you pointed out that you've met him in person all the time, and that he's not a, oh. that big of a guy. Which is, oh, I was going to say, this might be the the only time he's ever fought in the UFC, and he's been the bigger guy in the cage. I think this might be the first time in like and, fifteen, and that still yeah. might not be the case. <laughs> yeah, it might. Still. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't say he's a great striker. I'd say he's technically he's not a great striker, but he makes up for it by having just insane volume. I mean, his output. Yeah, I think I think of the fight, and I use this one a lot because to me it was always been his most impressive fight, the Tyson Bell fight in Abu Dhabi, where it's supposed to be like a hundred degrees. He's going against a more accomplished striker, and he outstrikes him simply by just nonstop pressure and just mentally like look like he broke the guy, constantly mount, m- m- marching forward. He's landing 
two or three punches while only getting hit one. I what I also like about it that he's not just throwing; he has technique by it. Straight punches on the pipe. Works jab is very busy. He likes to work a double jab. He likes to work a double jab with combinations after like a double double jab to the body. Uh, I like that he targets the body, knowing that he's trying to break. He's not just trying to land damage. He's trying to break your lungs. He's trying to break your body. So make you work, make you work, make you back pedal, and then go to the body. No, that that's that that hurts even more than if I caught you in the chin. Uh, and then he's been throwing a lot of kicks. You go to the Anthony Pettis fight; it was a lot of leg kicks, which been added. He does check his own leg kicks if you throw at him. Decent entries. He's not a he's not gonna out wrestle Gregor Gillespie early, but he might late with the pressure. If the pressure starts being, he could get in good takedowns and out wrestle Gregor Gillespie. And he's an elite grappler. This is a medalist at the No Gi World Championship. He's got seven submissions. This is one of my you know I keep saying no, this is my favorite fight in the card because I'm very intrigued how it goes. Gillespie could put on a wrestling clinic. Similar to, I shouldn't say similar, but Benil Darius had big. Benil Darius was the better wrestler. However, Darius also had the elite level BJJ skills to go along with it. Gillespie doesn't have that, but in Gillespie's case, he's an even better wrestler than Darius. Like if he picks, like I wouldn't be surprised if he picks up uh, Carlos Diego Ferreira and slams him. You know, you see like some of those. However, I think Ferreira's striking and his nonstop action, and this is gonna, we're going to have like the, the, almost the exactly same breakdown. I think his striking and forcing Gillespie to deal with it, like Kevin Lee didn't go after him. Like no one was after him, and he kind of let him dictate the pace. That's not going to be the case with Carlos Diego Ferreira. He's going to be throwing shots at you. He's going to force you to get ta- – I think he's going to force Gillespie to go for a takedown without setting it up, and I think he jumps on a guillotine too. And I think it's going to happen in the first round. I think it's going to happen early. So I'm also locking this as my upset special. And I'm also taking it by submission by guillotine. I think we both picked a guillotine. Carlos Diego Ferrer, first round submission by guillotine. There you go. Uh, on a pretty well-balanced card, two picks for the slight upset there. Fajera over Gillespie. It's back to heavyweight action as Maurice Green and Marcos Rogerio the Lima uh, duke it out on the UFC on ESPN 24 main card. Green, the 34-year-old from Illinois, is 9-5 and five overall. He is 4-3 and three since joining the UFC out of the 28th season of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, however, that breaks down to him having won his first three in the UFC and then lost three of his last four. Most recently, he fought at the UFC's Halloween card uh, last October, losing to Greg Hardy by second-round punches. DeLima, the 35-year-old Brazilian, is 17-7-1 overall. He is 6-5 in the UFC since joining out of the third season of The Ultimate Fighter Brazil. However, that 6-5 UFC record... Only the last five fights have been at heavyweight. He is 3-2 and two as a heavyweight in the UFC. He fought most recently last November, getting choked out by Alexander Romanov with a rarely seen forearm choke in the closing seconds of the first round. Odds in this one do favor DeLima. He is minus 190. Uh, Green is out there as high as plus 170 as the underdog. This one, to me, 
it's, I mean, obviously neither of them are super high level UFC uh, heavyweights, but it's a question of the way their strengths and weaknesses match up. Green is a bad striker. I mean, he's not a horrible striker offensively. All, you know, he has power. All heavyweights have power. But for a guy who's six foot seven and tries to fight long, he's bad at keeping people off of him. He's super hittable. On the flip side, Marco Sagerio de Lima is bad on the ground. Like all I I without looking, I think all of his UFC losses, all five of them, are by submission. And a couple of them are bad submission. Like he got he got Von Prude. He got the Alexander Romanov playground bully choke where Romanov basically just put his forearm on the guy's chin and neck and he tapped out. If if for some reason this ends up on the ground, Green can absolutely like triangle this man or arm triangle him, but Green's not good at getting the fight to the ground. He's a guy that, that like actually has submits people off his back. You know, his ridiculous uh sub of John Volante where he just basically hugged him to death from the bottom. Like Maurice Green, when, if and when he gets hurt, isn't going to shoot like a great, like reactive double and, and take down to Lima. So it's the pretty good kickboxer with like miserable ground game against the miserable defensive striker with a sneaky good submission game off his back. This one's pretty straightforward for me. Neither of them is great, but uh, Marco Sagerio de Lima lives to fight another day. I think he's going to knock Green out in the first round. Probably just give him a couple of leg kicks he doesn't like, throw a kick to the body, Green's uh, defense drops, and he's just going to knock him out with a punch. Yeah, so I want to address the odds. I mean, Delima's negative 190. He should be negative 190 against anybody in the UFC. Like, this should be a pick-up fight. This is not a, this is not a glaring... Um, Endorsement of Maurice Green, who's <laughs> just the complete opposite of uh, Hajero de Lima. Uh, so when we we do tape study every week, I think we take pride in how much we do tape study. But sometimes you know life gets in the way, and you just kind of run out of time. And I was starting to run out of time, and I had to make a sacrifice. And I said, you know what? If I sacrifice it, I'm sacrificing this one. I didn't do that much tape study, so don't back whatever you know I'm saying. So. Um, you know what I know of Maurice Green. He's he's a long, lengthy guy. I think your breakdown of him not knowing how to keep distance is really good. Uh, he he has good leg kicks because he's so long. I would say his kicks are fast. He's pretty uh, pretty fast for a heavyweight himself. Uh, he does throw naked kicks, so I wouldn't be shocked if he throws a naked kick and uh, Dilema just cracks him with a counter. He, I also didn't like the Greg Hardy fight. I mean, how could you? He was just physically overwhelmed with him, and he just, like, basically Hardy just bull rushed him, and and he kind of folded. Uh, he didn't seem to he want any of that smoke with Greg Hardy, and then, then complain about how the fight ended. He's a, also a bad wrestler. I agree with you that his grappling is not too bad. Like, he actually almost caught Alexi Olenek in a submission in their fight. I mean, how... Well, I should say this. The commentary team was going crazy. How close was he actually catching the submission? Probably not that close. Uh, but his cardio is embarrassingly bad. I mean, you go to that John 
Volante fight, it was so ugly. And, and Volante's <laughs> cardio was even worse. Uh, as far as uh, Delima, Delima is wild. But though he's wild, he does pack some power. He throws hard, hard light kicks. He is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, though he isn't an elite grappler that the UFC will pretend he is. I mean, he was big bully, big brother, choked by Alexander Omarov where he just put his forearm on his neck and laid on him and went unconscious. I mean, all you got to do is pull up his sure dog fight finder, and you'll see that he's got 12 TKOs and three subs. He's more known. He should be more known for his hands than his ground game. Even though UFC says, "Oh, Brazilian, who's a black belt? He must be a wizard on the ground." It's not not the case. So, who wins? I don't know. I'm I'm gonna go with Delima too. He's probably the more well-rounded fighter. And you know what? Just because the I keep saying how much I like the rest of the card, we need something to balance out. So I say Delima wins. For let's say it's a god awful decision, like uh, like Volante versus Maurice Green part two, but Volante is now Brazilian. <laughs> so so stuck between two of the most intriguing fights in the card, you're just going to stick that right in the middle, aren't you? There you go. <laughs> this That's is a miserable get. decision. Outstanding. It's, uh, it's the one when we get to the uh, recap show, which is live on the Sherdog YouTube page directly after the event. So make sure you check that out. Uh, this is not we spend like. 30 seconds on and we just go right to the next fight. There you go. Keith Schillen uh, voicing terrible things into existence on the Sure Dog Radio Network. Back down to the welterweight division we go, and it is Neil Magny versus Jeff Neal. Magny, the 33-year-old, is 24-8 and eight overall. He is 17-7 and seven in the UFC as a uh, perhaps the most surprising success story to come out of season 16 of The Ultimate Fighter. He fought most recently uh, in January, headlining UFC on ESPN 20 and dropping a unanimous decision to Michael Chiesa. That snapped a three-fight winning streak over Jingliang Li, Anthony Rocco Martin, and Robbie Lawler. He'll be taking on Neil, the 30-year-old Texan, is 13-3 overall. He is 5-1 in the UFC since joining out of the very first season of Dana White's Contender Series. And uh, in his most recent fight, he dropped his first loss in the UFC, uh, being pretty thoroughly outclassed by Stephen Thompson in the headline fight of UFC Fight Night 183 last December. That snapped a five-fight winning streak since joining the UFC over Brian Camozzi, Frank Camacho, Bilal Muhammad, Nico Price, and Mike Perry. Odds on this one do favor Neil. He is minus 185, where you can get Magny at plus 160. Keith, these guys have two things in common. One, Neil, and two, they <laughs> both have a little something to prove after getting uh, turned aside in their most recent fight. Magny wants to prove that he's still a top 10 fighter and can make a run at the title. Neil wants to prove that that was an aberration and the real Jeff Neal is what we saw in his first five fights, which was the truth, like badly beating some good fighters. Which is the case? Who wins and how does the fight look? Well, I appreciate you saving all our listeners from me. You, you knowing I'm nearly 40 years old, so I was going to make a terrible dad joke and say I'm taking <laughs> Neal to win. Uh, so, yeah, this is a really intriguing matchup. We were just talking off the air that 
I think this should be the main event. I think it, you know, you have two guys who were both in main events their last fight. I just feel like if this goes three rounds, we're going to feel dissatisfied. Like we needed two more rounds. Maybe not. Maybe one of the guys finishes it. Uh, it just, they just seem like guys who should be in main event fights. Now, Neil Magny, you know, he's been around forever. We kind of know what we got with him. High output guy, pressure striker. He's a builder. It gets stronger and stronger as each fight goes on, which is why five rounds would probably favor him because we've seen him get stronger and stronger. Uh, he stays calm while he pressures. Like he's, he's not tight, which, which saves a lot of his energy. Not a lot of tells. Everything's short from him, uh, which is funny because he's a long and lengthy guy who really wants to keep his opponents at the end of punches. But I mean by short, like he doesn't – not a lot of twist in his shoulders. A lot of times when I say tells, a big tell in, in fighting is and, – and I know we're not showing a video, but it's when you twist your shoulder back. Like if you twist your shoulder back to the right and then throw your right because you're trying to go loading up. You're loading up your shots as tell. He doesn't really do that. But with that says, he doesn't have big one-punch power because he doesn't load up. Uh, but he works behind a jab. I love that he will follow his jab into the pocket, and then he starts loading up other arsenal, like other weapons, elbows, step-in knees. He had some really good success against Anthony Rocco Martin that he got to his range, and then calf kicks were coming in when he got to that, you know, the pocket range. Uh, uh, if he gets to the clinch, he's a good clinch striker. Uh, good in close quarters where he can go offensive with the striking elbows, knees, shoulder shots. He's a he's an above average offensive wrestler. You know, use those long. He, actually, his wrestling kind of reminds me so much of his last opponent, Michael Chiesa, using those long arms, kind of not really shoot on your you know legs entry guy. Kind of want to back you up to the cage and help you know using the cage to help when he locks his hands around your legs. Uh, I really thought, and we talked about this in the last fight, and it's actually why I picked Neil Magny to beat Michael Kessa, and it was a terrible decision. I know you picked Michael Kessa, and I picked Neil Magny. You had a great call. I, The Achilles heel of Neil Magny has always been his defensive wrestling. I thought he shored that up a little bit. I knew it was a weakness, but I didn't think it was such a glare. What did you say, Mom? And Michael Kessa showed that that is still the case. You know, we saw it against Rafael Dos Santos, another one that he took him right down and he struggled. Michael Chiesa turned him into a takedown dummy where rinse and repeat. And until Neil Magny fixes that, this is the highest level he'll be, like low top 15 guy. Move on to Jeff Neal, Southpaw. As you mentioned, I feel like he was a little rushed against Steven Thompson. Now, I picked Neil to win another, so both these guys last fight I picked wrong. But now you see, like, you know, like hindsight's twenty twenty. It was such a great striker, like Stephen Thompson. Maybe he could have had one or two more fights before that. But I still like him. I still like him a lot. Like, I'm not jumping off the train with this guy. He's light on his feet. He's incredibly fast. Good accuracy. Like, I don't think he, he – everyone talks about his power, but I don't think he gets enough credit for um, how good he is at landing, finding the chin, catching the shots. Uh, you know, you can hit as much as you want, but if you don't hit the moving target – it's it's pointless. He throws straight punches right down the pipe. He's got huge, huge power. I like that he fights with a high guard defense. So it's it's kind of hard to hit him. He is a bit of a headhunter. We talked about that with Steven Thompson, which is why I should have moved towards Steven Thompson. Because if you're going to be headhunted, don't go at one of the best, you know, the guy who wants you to headhunt. He wants to 
use your counters. He wants to just barely slip off the line and, and land shots. Uh, but he has a crushing high kick that I love that he adds into his combination, a throw combo, crushing high kick behind it. Uh, good takedown defense, decent takedowns himself. We saw that in, in the fight against Nico Price. And he gets on top. We saw, again, the Nico Price hard, hard ground and pound. The Stephen Thompson fight was supposed to be Jeff Neal's breakthrough moment. It didn't happen. I think this might be. Uh, he doesn't have the same amount of damage that Neil Magny has taken over the years. And I just think he's more dangerous on the feet. He's got the more raw tools quicker. Other than the length advantage of Neil Magny, I see Jeff Neal just being better everywhere else. I think I think he catches Magny, and I think he this is his moment. I think he puts him out. So give me Jeff Neal by third-round TKO. I'm I'm feeling a lot of the same dynamic you are here. My one question mark hanging over Jeff Neal is really how much that severe illness had to do with his performance against Thompson. Because it's entirely possible that Jeff Neal was 100%. He was the best Jeff Neal ever. And just if all you've got is striking and no threat of the takedown, Stephen Thompson is still one of the biggest asks in the entire sport. So it, it might just be that, or it might be that, like, you know, Neil has lost something. If he has not lost anything significant through that, you know, bout of like pneumonia that had him hospitalized and losing all this weight, I agree with you that he is better than Magny almost everywhere it counts in this fight. Like Magny's probably a better uh, straight submission and positional grappler, but I don't think it's going to come to that. You know, if Magny is shooting for takedowns on Neil, I think it's probably going to be going to be because he's he's compromised in some way like Neil has hurt him. I I've, I've seen Magny be outstruck. It's not easy, but Magny versus Lorenz Larkin is still just about as wrong as I've been in my prediction of any major fight I, I can think of. Uh, Neil is not a Lorenz Larkin type, type striker. Like Larkin clearly comes from a traditional martial arts, like karate type background that he's adapted to MMA, whereas Neil's a boxer. But, you know, so is Santiago Ponzinibbio. And, and he like landed on Magny a lot and hurt him. I think Neil will as well. Magny's tough. Always been uh, incredibly tough, resilient, difficult to stop. Both these guys were in five-round fights their last time out, so I don't expect gas to be a factor like you. I expect we'll be wanting two more rounds of this when the final bell rings. But give me Jeff Neal by decision. Mm -hmm. We arrive at the co-main event of UFC Vegas 26. It is a welterweight matchup between O'Donnell Cerrone and Alex Morono. This, of course, was put together on less than a week's notice when Diego Sanchez was dismissed from his uh, roster spot in the UFC. Cerrone, the 38-year-old from Colorado, is 36-15 and 15 with two no contests overall. He is 23-12 and 12 with one no contest in the UFC. He is one of those fighters who, along with Jim Miller and Joe Lozon, kind of juggle different parts of the UFC record book every time out. Uh, <clears throat> he fought most recently last September, having a draw with Nico Price, overturned to a no contest when Price tested positive for cannabis. Hooray for Florida being the newest state to remove uh, marijuana as a banned substance for, for fighters. You know, s small change. 
little bit at a time. However, more importantly for Cerrone, that draw with Price was the brightest spot in uh, what had been a four-fight losing streak before that. He had lost to Anthony Pettis, Conor McGregor, Justin Gaethje, and Tony Ferguson. He'll be taking on Morono. The 30-year-old Texan is 18-7 and seven with one no contest overall. He is 7-4 and four with one no contest in the UFC. He fought most recently uh, last December at the Thompson versus Neal card, where he lost a unanimous decision to Anthony Pettis. Odds slightly favor the living legend, as Cerrone is minus 130, where you can get Morono at plus 110 uh, as, as the tiniest of underdogs. Uh, Keith, we've talked about this both off air and then probably on air, uh, talking about other fights, but this fight, as far as a spectator thing was probably improved by the replacement. It would be a a cool thing for the record books to have Cerrone and Sanchez fight two super, super OGs, obviously two of the most prolific fighters in the history of the promotion. Uh, certainly Jay Petri, who writes the stats and trivia pieces for sure dog would have had a field day with that one. But as a fight, I think this is more interesting. Uh, frankly, I mean, I, I didn't go deep into tape study for it. I don't think you need to when you have guys with a combined like 55 UFC fights between them. You, you kind of know what you're getting. But I did not think that the current version of Diego Sanchez was going to have much for Donald Cerrone. Even a Donald Cerrone who was on a, you know, 0-4-1 stretch. Just Cerrone's been fighting much better fighters. And... He still has stuff to offer offensively where Diego Sanchez has mostly just survived his last few fights. So I'm happy for this fight, not just because, you know, Morono obviously is somebody of my acquaintance who, who's stepping up and getting this opportunity. Uh, in terms of the kind of matchup this is, where, you know, Cerrone is one of the biggest names in the promotion and Morono is one of those very, I mean, we've talked before about how hard it is for guys that are kind of... In, in the middle of the the pool of the welterweight division, either to get like a top 15 matchup or a matchup with a name fighter. And he's getting this opportunity twice in a row, you know, against Pettis, he put up a pretty good uh, fight. He had Pettis in trouble on the ground in the first round. He learned firsthand how slippery Anthony Pettis is just how legendarily tough it is to even keep the guys back once you've taken his back. Uh, And then, you know, Pettis came back and won the second and third rounds. It's rare for a guy like Morono who's in that, just number 25 to number 50 wasteland of the UFC welterweight division to get a second chance against a name like this. Uh, But there are some things here that I think do subtly favor Morono. Uh, Cerrone is not a huge uh, welterweight. And at this point in his career, I mean, he's no longer a plus athlete, which is good because I mean, Morono flat out, he's, he's a minus athlete by UFC standards. If you got all 75 welterweights in the UFC, had him do a decathlon, Alex Morono comes in close to last. And I say that as, as a guy that I think he would probably call a friend, but the flat out, that's not what his game runs on. The one disadvantage that usually plays into uh, the short notice opponent stepping up, I don't think will be a problem. Uh, one reason is that Morono is not a big welterweight. He never has a huge weight cut. And two of his primary sparring partners are fighting on this card in Fajera and Neil. Like those are like he has been he has been building towards something for this week, you know, this weekend anyway. Uh, so he, he isn't he is in fantastic shape, you know, should be a fairly routine weight cut for him. So they're fighting on as even ground as they can. Uh, 
Cerrone still as a striker, he has he has all the weapons. He's you know always been a very good Muay Thai striker with uh, good low kicks, uh, good punches with both hands. Morono is is hittable on the feet, like most of the ceiling he's come up against, you know, against the better uh, welterweights in the division is when he gets in firefights and he gets worse back than he gives. I mean, the, the Chaos Williams fight was over before it began, but even against someone like uh, Nico Price, like it was it was a wild back and forth fight and he just ended up getting the worst of it. Uh, Cerrone, still a good offensive wrestler, uh, you know, when it suits him. That's always been an underrated part of his game. Uh, Morono can be taken down. His uh, his uh, takedown defense is not impregna- impregnable. Uh, he's a fantastic grappler. You don't see it very often because he greatly prefers to stand. But you know he's a he's a second degree BJJ black belt who literally runs a Gracie Baja school. I I don't want to feel like I'm just you know like going out on a limb for the hometown guy here, but I feel like the moment is kind of is kind of ripe. I, I think Cerrone's going to get upset here, uh, not emotionally upset. I think he's going to get upset in terms of the odds. I expect Cerrone to get uh, the better of the striking, especially early on. But, yeah, uh, give me Alex Morono to survive that. Second and third rounds probably won't be the prettiest things in the world, but give me Morono to win both of them, whether it stays standing or it goes to the ground. And uh, Alex Morono picks up the biggest win of his uh, career in his first co-headlining appearance uh, by decision. All right, so... I got two questions for you before we move on to my prediction. You said Alex Morano would finish near the bottom if we took all the welterweights in a decathlon. Who wins the decathlon, my man? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Is that, is that like a known track star? In, in, in the I don't know if there's a, a known track star, but you know, give me somebody that was like, uh, like a Jeff Neal type that was probably like a star football player in high yeah, school. I was going to say, like, who's the All-American... Yeah. Football players, and our, yeah, um, you know what would be it'd be some person we didn't would never even guess. That's what actually what would happen. You know, um, you find out. You know, Neil Magny was a tr- track star. But he did the hurdles. <laughs> up, you know, and um, other question. So Moreno is from Houston. Yeah, Houston area. One week later, you're holding a card in Houston. It's a big event, you know, second time the fans are back. Why not just move this fight to that card? I think mostly because they wanted to keep Cerrone on this card. I, I think why? that's really the only reason. But why? You got no fans in attendance. It's What's the advantage? Give the I can't explain it. Donald Cerrone and the local guy. Yeah, maybe he's like, maybe he's like, hey, there's already a bus leaving from Fortis. I can get on it for free. Like, I, I, I seriously have no idea, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because I, 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 I talked to him, and I don't, I don't think think he's even coming to two sixty two next week. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, so shout out to who who is Alex Moreno's manager? Is he is he a Iridium guy? Who is he? What is he? Who is uh, he? Bl- yeah, Alex is uh, is with Iridium at this point. Okay, so shout out to <laughs> Jason, Jason House. House and Dude, I don't know what's going on, but good for you, man. You get him. Against Anthony Pettis, so I was like, "How? Where the hell did that magic come from?" And then you got him in with Donald Cerrone. So, uh, yeah, man, <laughs> Alex Morano, you need to give your—I don't know if you're going to win this matchup, but you 
your manager is giving you your chance. He's giving you multiple chances to, you know, Moreno's never going to win the title. I know that, you, you know, you're friendly with him. You occasionally go to his house and watch UFC and stuff. But he's, and he 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 will flat out tell yeah. you that. I mean, yeah, he's a mid card. He's a he's a gatekeeper. But he's been a chance to go against two legendary guys. He's been given the chance to get that moment to have one of these resumes. You know, have one of these guys on his resume. Uh, so Cerrone, let's talk about Cerrone for a second. He, it's so tough now breaking down Cerrone because it's like. Is he washed up, or is he, or is he just faced? I mean, look who he's faced. He's faced his last five fights has been Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, Anthony Pettis. Say what you want about Anthony Pettis at this point. Uh, Conor McGregor and Nico Price. Yeah, it's so you know three. I would say I still think most people would say Ferguson's still pretty prime. Three guys who are prime with. McGregor, Gaethje, Ferguson, Nico Price, who's just a wild man, and Anthony Pettis, who's a tough stylist in matchup for Donald Cerrone, who, even though he he looks like he's washed. But it's, so it's hard to really figure out, like, is he washed or is he just facing a, you know, facing top guys? Now, when you move him down to a Alex Moreno, that gets solved this weekend. Like, we'll know for sure if, if Donald Cerrone is washed or not. If Alex Moreno does what you say, then maybe it's time for Donald Cerrone to stop thinking about retiring. Let's be honest. Donald Cerrone is never going to retire. He's going to be fighting uh, tough man competitions and fighting bare knuckle boxing and fighting Kimbo's grandson in the Miami backyards. Like, that's going to be Donald Cerrone. Uh, so as far as the skill set, he's got a nice jab. It's always kind of been a thing. I'd say of stinging power. He doesn't have crushing power. Um, he does well to really throw combos, and he does very well when he's not fighting off his back foot. He mixes punches and kicks together well. Uh, he wants to fight in that kicking range when he's striking. He'll throw a lot of kicks. Some of the negatives about him is, though, is he's a big target. He stands up very straight. He's been hurt to the body more times than I can count. He's a slow starter. He doesn't like being pressured. Some of the, like, look what Tony Ferguson did by pressuring him. He lacks one punch fight ending power other than, like, you know, a landing kick. He's susceptible to leg kicks with Justin Gaethje. Tore him up before the, I wouldn't think about the knockout, but Justin Gaethje was already tearing up his legs. He's also just taken years and years of just damage. The amount of damage he's taken, going all the way back to the WEC days when he was fighting, um, you know, Benson Henderson in wars. You know, um, on the ground, you sound like you're favoring Morano on the ground. I don't know if that's the case because I think Donald Cerrone is a very underrated ground fighter. I think he's been his whole career. I think he's a very underrated offensive wrestler. He's actually won a lot of big matchups with his wrestling. Uh, he's got some slick submission game, especially off his back. I think about, like, say what you want about Mike Perry. Mike Perry's not a bad grappler. And Donald Cerrone, like, made him look like a chump on the ground. Embarrassed him, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's pretty good at scrambles. He's he's not hard to take down, but he's not easy to take down either. Like, you have to be a pretty good wrestler to get Donald Cerrone down. But if you're a good wrestler, you're going to get him down. The other thing about him is... I feel like his cardio is starting to fade. 
And that just to me is just a product of getting old and having the damage. You know, I drive a 2011 Sonata. Doesn't run as, doesn't have the same get up as it did in, you know, when I got it in 2013. You know, um, move over to Murano. Murano's a brawler. He could be more technical, but he's not. He won't. He'll, he'll want to brawl. He, he's a bit of a wild man. He, you know, uh, his corner will be screaming him, uh, slow down, pick your shots. Then he won't. He'll be throwing power shots the whole time. Conserve your energy. He won't. Uh, he he does have power, but he doesn't have massive power for a guy who's as wild as he is. And he unloads on every single punch. Like everything he throws looks like he's throwing a, you know, Joe Rogan says like throwing a baseball. Like he's swinging from grandma's house. Uh, I like his leg kicks though. I think he needs to throw like more leg kicks, especially against Donald Cerrone. I think leg kicks is a big part of his game, but he's underutilized. He is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, as you says. He doesn't use it nearly enough, as you said, and that's because he's not a great wrestler. He's he's not a wrestler at all, and he's pretty weak defense wrestler. For such an accomplished grappler, he really struggled on the bottom against Jordan Mean. Now I'm going back a couple fights, but that was just the last time that I remember him being a very grappling heavy matchup so as far as prediction goes i'm on the fence i really am i i i've thought about taking moreno um and it just comes down to what does Cerrone have left in their primes i would have taken Cerrone to style him on alex morano i think you would have too yeah. um sure. morano could catch Cerrone. i would be very surprised if he submits him however I think he's going to struggle with Cerrone's kicks. And every time I think about this fight, I just keep thinking about Cerrone. Even if he's not landing the kicks, just kicking his arms, kicking his legs, you know, partially blocked. And I think Cerrone wins a very competitive fight. But, yeah, give me Cerrone. Give me Cerrone by decision. And that brings us to the main event of UFC on ESPN 24 a flyweight meeting of ranked strawweights in the form of Marina Rodriguez and Michelle Watterson. Rodriguez, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 13-1-2 overall. She's 3-1-2 since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. She fought most recently back in January at UFC 257, uh, winning the aforementioned fight over Amanda Hibas, where uh, Hibas was handling her pretty well for a round and change and then a fight changing strike and unfortunately a potentially fight changing referee gaff led to uh, the win for Rodriguez. She'll be taking on Watterson. The 35 year old is 18 and eight overall. She is six and four in the UFC. Uh, she is of course the former former Invicta FC Atomweight champion. She fought most recently last September in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 177, taking a split decision over Angela Hill. Before that, she had lost decisions to Carla Esparza and Ioana Janjacek. Odds in this one do favor Rodriguez. She is minus 225, where Watterson is around plus 180 or plus 185. Uh, <clears throat> thing about Marie, Marina Rodriguez is, She's 3-1-2 in the UFC, but 
I feel as though her loss and her two draws, all three of those, I actually scored for Rodriguez. So on that level, I mean, she could potentially be undefeated in the UFC right now, 16-0 and 0 overall, and how would we be talking about her? She probably would already have had a title shot. But then again, that last fight, the win over, over Hibas, she was getting beat bad. And then she rocked Hebus really badly. And for all I know, like she might have been about to get that finished no matter what happened. But just the weirdness that ensued leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. So she's gotten the better and, and the worse of kind of the the hand of fate here in, in her UFC fights. It's been a weird run for her, but she appears to have all the potential in the world for someone who really came out of nowhere on that first season of Dana White's Contender Series Brazil. I mean... Going into that, she was a eight and nine and fighter in in uh, Brazil. We got a lot of those. Most of them don't pan out too much once they get to the UFC level. My issue with this fight, and I would feel better about it if they were actually contesting this fight at strawweight, but even at flyweight, those uh, those draws and that loss for Rodriguez. She lost to Carla Esparza. She had a draw with Cynthia Calvillo and a draw with Randa Marcos. Regardless of how you scored those fights, she had the same problem in all three fights, and that's that she could not stay off the ground. That includes she could not stay off the ground against someone in Carla Esparza who is tiny but a good wrestler, and she could not stay off the ground even against someone like Randa Marcos, who, I mean, she's a average-sized strawweight but is not known as a good offensive wrestler. And in fact, you know, her main problem is that she's not a good offensive wrestler. Uh, that's a that's a problem to me because Michelle Watterson is undersized and she's a good wrestler. I mean, I've kind of thrown this line out before, but they call her the karate hottie. But the reason she's had as much success as she has in the UFC is that she's uh, been willing to embrace the wrestling and that she's been kind of surprisingly strong and surprisingly... <clears throat> effective as a wrestler you know for one of the smallest women in the division that gives me pause when i see marina rodriguez fighting her waterson isn't a wrestler like esparza like she doesn't just like actually shoot a single leg from medium distance like esparza is an actual schooled wrestler i'm pretty sure she wrestled in high school that's not waterson like you know waterson is uh gets a lot of her takedowns from the clinch uh, from initiating scrambles just by you know getting her hands on the other woman and making something uh, crazy happen. I mean, she got about a million takedowns on Courtney Casey without, I think, ever actually successfully shooting a takedown. Uh, I've, I mean, I've been back and forth on this one uh, just all week because, honestly, on paper, for Rodriguez, this is a fantastic matchup. It's you know, a bigger name than Amanda Hebas against a lesser fighter, or at least a fighter who's at a lesser spot right now in their respective development. But I think this is kind of a sneaky trap fight for her. This is just the kind of fight that I could see Waterson grinding out just, you know, three rounds out of five, you know, maybe even four, just by getting those takedowns, by, you know, getting her into the clinch and at least making her uncomfortable enough there that uh, Rodriguez can't just start you know, unleashing the the knees and the elbows there. It won't be pretty if Waterson wins, but it'll be just another serious notch in the belt for one of the more unlikely success stories, I think, in the last couple of years. Like, I would have bet the house that Waterson was going to exit the UFC on three losses as soon as she got in. 
just too tiny, you know, game too dependent on being a karate cell fighter and needing to fight at a certain range. And she's made just an incredible, admirable retooling of her game and, and, you know, got a second life for herself on, on top of it all being 35 years old at this point. I know I'm stepping out on a, a little bit of a limb here, and I'm not making this my upset special because I'm not nearly as comfortable with it as uh, some of the other upsets I, I've picked. But give me Michelle Waterson by decision uh, and Marina Rodriguez, just all the potential in the world just takes, you know, another little speed bump on her way to wherever she's headed. Take us home. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really fair assessment. So before we get to that, I, I got to clarify something for a second because you said something. I'm a little confused. You were talking about um, Michelle Waterson's nickname, that you have an issue with it. Are you saying she's not karate or are you saying she's not a hottie? You know, her husband looks pretty tough, so I'm going to make sure that everybody knows that I'm talking strictly about her fight style. She is a lovely woman. She's clearly an amazing mom. Like, seriously, my favorite part of any Michelle Watterson card is that we get, like, the little, like, uh, lead-in, like, sizzle reels that have just, like, her adorable kid. You know? I don't yeah, know yeah. if we got any of those this time just because it was on such short notice, but those sure. are my favorite, uh, and, you know, anytime we get them. Yeah, because I'm sure... You speak for all MMA fans when Michelle Waterson is around. We just, we just love seeing her kid. It's nothing else about her. Just we just love seeing her kid. Um, now this, so we've been talking about. I don't feel like this has a main event feel to it. I didn't, but I, I'm not upset with it being main event. Like I, I'm glad that this getting five rounds. And if I'm Michelle Waterson, I'm feeling even better about that having five rounds than if it was three rounds. But what I feel about this, I just feel like this is the the last fight. Like it's not having the main event; it just happens to be last, and I'm okay with that because it's like it's like six or seven fights that are all to me are equal. Like you could make an argument for Gillespie and Diego Ferreira being this. Oh, Jeff Neal. Except for Green versus DeLima, the entire main card is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you could even make an argument for Cerrone. I mean, Cerrone by himself can always be in the main event. Yeah, it would have been the most sexiest one against Alex Morrow, but regardless, like. I'd probably be saying the same thing. Like, ah, they're going last. It doesn't feel like a main event, but like that's how I feel about this one. That said, I don't want people to miss what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's not a fantastic matchup because it really is. I'm really intrigued. You made a lot of good points that I agree with. Uh, when we break down Michelle Waterson's style, the she uses lots of movement on the feet. She likes to strike from space. She likes to kind of like attack and then get out. She likes to force her opponents to chase her. Now, well, this is effective to set up her blitzing style because you're also kind of making them not, you can't, it's harder to time someone's blitzing style to counter if you're kind of moving forward, not instead of waiting for it to come at you. But so that helps her and it also helps her takedowns, timing a takedown because you're kind of, you know, where they're going to step next. However, if you're always backing up and getting chased, that can trick the judges to thinking you're losing. We've seen that happen with fighters where they're always backing up. Even though that's what they want and they're dictating the fight, it actually looks bad. Uh, but she likes, you know, like I said, she likes to set up her long range strikes from that. She likes to work outside with her karate style. A lot of her game from striking is her kicks. She has that Holly Holmes sidekicks, one of her main training partners. She loves that, you know, keeping her distance with 
with that. She has a large arsenal in her kicks due to the great dexterity in her legs. She'll throw like a hook kick. She'll throw a question mark kick. Um, John Jones oblique kicks, another one of her teammates. But I agree with you. She is a very, I don't want to say good wrestler because she just, she's, she's good. I don't want to say good. She's serviceable on the ground. She can get the fight to the ground, which is, how about this? She's a surprisingly effective wrestler. That's what I want to say. Because based on her physical traits being undersized, like you wouldn't expect her to out wrestle. Like Cordy Casey is now fighting at flyweight. Michelle Watterson could easily make at. I, I'm assuming she still could. Now she's a lot older now, but you know, at one point she was an atom weight. Courtney Casey's much bigger than her, and she kept taking Courtney Casey down over and over and over again. Um, she took uh, Angel Hill down, another girl that, you know, Angel Hill is strawweight, but she's bigger than her. She's much bigger than her. Um, so. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think she's good in the clinch. Uh, she's had success against Yuan and Young Jacek in the clinch, where Yuan and Young Jacek is known for her clinch game. Like, that's one of her strengths. She had success against Karolina Kovacavich in the clinch. Heath Her- uh, Felice Herrig, not Heath Herrig, Felice Herrig. It's, it's, it's like one of the morning here, guys. I'm tired. Uh, Heath Herring in the clinch. I said it again. Uh, Felice Herring in the clinch. Uh, <laughs> She so she does good in that, but besides like winning to striking, she can take you down. She has a judo background, uh, background, so she can do some trips in there, some throws. I this is my number one thing I hate about Michelle Watterson, though it's something it works for her a lot, is going for the head and arm triangle. Uh, I'm sorry, the head and arm throw. She throws the head and arm throw, or and we in wrestling we call a headlock throw. Headlocks work against herbs, that's it, and they give you gives you back. I just hate it. I wish you'd get rid of that game. But she hits it against the girls, so um, she gets you down. Some good top control, good back takes. Uh, she even had the back meet against Yoana Young Jacek. And that was a fight that she was getting her ass handed to her. She was getting, like, break speed off, which is another thing I love about Michelle Watterson, that even though Yoana Young Jacek was such a better fighter than her, so much more skilled than her, her mental toughness in that to still make it somewhat competitive, to still be going hard so deep, to not to not mentally break herself, is something I admire in Michelle Watterson, even despite having the physical limits that she has. Move over to Marina Rodriguez. She's big for the weight class. Like, she's a big girl. I mean, you saw her against Amanda Hebas, like how much bigger that she is Amanda Hebas. And now you're moving it up to 125, where she might even be like she should be even bigger, and Michelle Watterson should be even smaller. She should, I think the size gap will become even bigger between them two. Um, but Marina Rodriguez is a tale of two fighters. She's a great striker. I should say a really great striker, and she's a really bad grappler. I mean, it's. I feel like we've gone back like 20 years in time for MMA. That was the case for a lot of people because that's what she is. She's a pretty one-dimensional fighter. On the feet, she's long and lengthy. She's got fast hands. She's got good technique. She throws punches straight down the pipe with like ferocity. Uh, she's a pressure striker. She she's very aggressive moving forward. Nice power. Attacks with combos. She has hard, long leg kicks. She'll 
brutalize you if you get in like in the pocket with stepping knees. Her clinch game is not bad. So I want to make I want to separate because a lot of times I put clinching clinching with grappling together when I'm talking about on the ground. A lot of times I put them together because they really are connected. In this case, I want to separate it because she's pretty she's actually very good in the clinch because she's very strong. She can dirty box, land good shots. She's good at um like um, framing and then landing slicing elbows in there. She's just a mean girl. Like she's got some street in her. Um, she'll throw hard knees up in the middle. Um, and then we've seen the punching power she has in her last fight, Amanda Hiba. She hurt her multiple times before putting her out, which is so rare at Strawway for like a true, wasn't a one punch knockout, but a true one punch changed the whole fight. But she is so bad on the ground. Her BJJ is pretty much non-existent. I mean, she you mentioned um, Carlos Esparza dominating on the ground. Carlos Esparza is known for her entries. Cynthia Calvillo, not a strong wrestler, but she is a grappler. They both dominated her on the ground. Uh, and Calvillo was losing when she came back in that fight. Like to you know, that's why they had the draw because she got ten eight round in the third round. So I really feel like this is. This is one of the hardest fights to pick, but the outcome is very easy to pick. One or two things are really going to happen, and I think they're both extreme. Either Rodriguez just big sisters Waterson, both on the feet and the clinch, where she's just battering her with bigger power, and she's just too big for her. Or Michelle Waterson, is, you're going to see the same thing we saw before, where it doesn't matter the size, she still gets in on your hips, she still gets in the clinch, gets trips, and she dominates on the canvas. If this was at 115, I would feel much, much better about picking Michelle Watterson. And I probably would be with you. Like, I wouldn't 100% agree with what you're saying. Like, this is not an easy pick for Rodriguez. However, I really think her team, her management, her herself, just probably just her own insane toughness, I really felt like they dropped the ball on this one because she could still make 115. And it wouldn't have been a much of a weight cut for her. Mind you, I know she wasn't fully in the camp. What would the situation be? But she probably would have. And then Rodriguez is someone who already struggled, giving her a shorter time to make the weight at 115. That could have drained her more. Or maybe even just go to 120. If you really want to say, okay, it's short notice, maybe I can't make it or whatever. Even if you make 120, you're giving it, it's harder on Rodriguez. That's going to pay dividends. Third round, fourth round. Fifth round, I don't know if you get that. Now, Michelle Watterson gets one takedown. This can change the whole fight. I don't know if she's going to. I think Rodriguez might be too big and too strong for us. So give me Rodriguez. And you know what? I think she might stop. I think she might bloody up Michelle Watterson. And I actually think she actually, I actually think she might get a stoppage. Because um, I think she's the biggest puncher that Michelle Watterson has faced in a I don't know. I, I don't have her record in front of me, so I don't want to forget somebody. But it's the biggest punch that she's facing in a really long time. So you know what? I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to say Rodriguez gets a second-round stoppage. There you have it. And I would be comfortable calling Rodriguez easily the biggest hitter Waterson has faced since Rose Namajunas all the way back in 2017. Like Just, just in terms of like one-shot power. Um, at any rate, there you have it. Some dissension. In the uh, main and co-main events, uh, plenty of drama here for you. That concludes the UFC on ESPN 24 Sure Dog Radio Preview. Thank you for listening. 
be sure to check us out right after the main event, either through the SureDog front page or just directly on the SureDog YouTube page for our live recap and reaction. We will break down all 12 of these fights. We'll talk about the things we were right about, things we were wrong about, things that were great, things that were terrible. We'll take your questions and comments. Uh, so make sure to, uh, to be there. Until then, enjoy your week, enjoy the fights, and thank you once again for listening. <laughs>